a hard-on for Marines because we kill everything we see. He plays his games, we play ours. To show our appreciation for so much power, we keep heaven packed with fresh souls. God was here before the Marine Corps. So you can give your heart to Jesus, but your ass belongs to the core. Hello there, and welcome to Pivotal Film. I'm Tom Nolan. And I'm Mario Ponzio, and this is episode 53. Our lead levels at the Pivotal Film Tower are not 53 mil- micrograms per milliliter or whatever. That's blood. good, right? Yeah, it, it follows New Haven standards. Uh, I don't actually, I believe we're under 5 as well, or 20, or 5, or 20. Depending you can what test the, that. Depending, you could, depending on what the Harp administration wants to do, um, as she fidgets herself into this entire... Uh, primary season. I'm pretty sure she doesn't have to do anything. I'm pretty sure she could, she's just going to win. No, she's not. <laughs> she's going to lose. I mean, I don't care. Justin Elker's got the numbers. I don't live in New Haven, so it doesn't mean that much to me. She I'm hired, still pretty sure she's She win. hired a Fairhaven school principal who told a handicapped woman with, I believe, multiple sclerosis, maybe, I think it was multiple sclerosis. That's a big deal. Deal with it that she couldn't get, or she couldn't get access to a door, the only handicap access bull door, for months on end. What did she hire him for? To be, so he's like the principal of the school. Oh, and oh this, he hired a, a, someone to be the principal of Fairhaven and told that. Well, and then that principal, in turn, yeah. had basically just made a joke and like made her sit out in the rain, you know, said like, oh, oh yeah, like an this. elevator was broken for yeah. months. And then they settled out of court for upwards of nearly $400,000. And uh, Tony Harp was like, hey, um, we're going to bury this and not talk about it because I suck as a mayor. Um. Yeah, I think she's so so to, so to all those people who uh, listen to us who are not from New Haven. That's the uh, once again our little tidbit of New Haven politics. Which we don't talk to be about the just big like politics state. everywhere else. Yeah, we don't talk about the big state controversy. Is there a controversy over the plastic? I think pretty, everyone's pretty okay with the plastic bag ban. Um, there's a there were some people at the Seymour Stop and Shop that I go to that were pretty unhappy about it today when they tried to check out and there was no ba- and the self checkout and there was no bags. Um, at Stop and Shop? At Stop they didn't have the paper, the paper bags for them? You get the free month paper bags? They did have paper bags. Some of them, but not all of them had paper bags. Which, I, I'm, which again, I'm, I don't care. I do have an issue slightly with the paper, the plastic bag ban in terms of it putting the, the carpet for the horse um, from an economic standpoint mm-hmm. because of the fact that SNAP recipients, you know, people who receive food mm-hmm. stamps, don't get exemptions for the bag fee. Right. And as well, you know... Um, a lot of those, a lot of people use plastic bags for like garbage bags, mm-hmm. and so we're putting on undue economic burden to an extent. <clears throat> and it could be upwards of like five to eight dollars a month, which seems pretty small. Yeah, we're putting on impoverished people already. My suggestion: we do a takeover of the federal government as a whole, create an excise tax on plastic polymer creators in order to promote research and development 
of uh, more renewable paper bag, paper production technology, sure. paper manufacturing, because I don't really think reusable bags are ever going to super catch on. Mario, that sounds like also, a big structural change. Yeah, that's fine. Is that what you're calling for here? I'm a... <laughs> I've realized that. We've, we've talked, we, have we talked about this before? I'm very much an authoritarian liberal. Like in my yeah, I yeah. kind of am too. I'm, um, I'm very pro the government taking stuff away from people that don't deserve it. So excise tax on polymer plastic creators uh-huh. uh, in order to you know, fund research of paper production and also to you know, help uh, put more money into the farm bill to increase the ridiculously low amounts that people that receive SNAP get. Because mm-hmm. it's not that expensive. You assholes. Snap only costs like $80 billion a year, which is a dent. Nothing. But the people that are getting Snap are, are tricking the government. Oh, yeah. Into getting all those rich government oh, yeah. subsidies and they're stuff like that. They're really soaking in that 400 to $500 most they're getting a month. Yeah. For all of their food needs. Ah, it's great. But it's great. has the conservatives should be miserable, I now will be able to make Tom miserable. Tom, you said you would drink anything. Right? Therefore, you're like, I'm ready to drink anything. Oh, like a couple minutes ago? Yeah. Yeah. I could, I could drink a beer. So, I could drink a beer. I could drink a beer. A beer. Well, hmm. I do have something from East Haven. It's made at our friends at the Beerics. Uh, it's as a bestie. I've never heard of them before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, their, their slogan is the one without crap in it. Because typically, uh-huh. this type of alcohol usually comes with some sort of weird kind of thing. I, I can't even... Oh, what is it called? I can't remember what the term really is. I don't even uh, know. When it's mass-produced. Uh, because you're going to be drinking a nice, bestie <laughs> hard no! seltzer. Hard seltzer? Gluten-free? Yeah. Why would there be gluten in it? Uh, they tip, Sometimes they put rice. They use rice um, in order to ferment the alcohol. Great. So this has in it uh, let's see here. We got filtered well water, alcohol fermented from cane sugar. Yep. Oh, fermented dextrose is typically uh, what's used in like more. Oh, okay. Larger, um, you know, seltzer companies. Mm-hmm. Then it's, it's pretty chemical. Uh, natural raspberry flavor, naturally derived citric acid, and naturally derived uh, malic acid. That's not a lot of ingredients. No. 85 calories. So you can check your figure. Oh, good. Four percent alcohol. You know, on your ABV, too much. And this is, I've had one yesterday, and it's not bad. It's I didn't know there was such a thing as craft hard seltzer. It's becoming a thing. Jesus, I don't know if I can take this anymore. Well, maybe you'll, have you ever had a hard seltzer before? Yeah, oh yeah. Okay. It's just. I mean, it, it tastes like a seltzer. Well, what's that face? It just has this, this weird hollowness to it that I can't. I can't get over it. Yeah, no. I can't shake like that. There should be more flavor to it. The thing about hard seltzers for me, and we talked about this before, I don't know if it was off air or on air. They're good for kickball. Yeah, yeah. Well, they're refreshing, mm-hmm. you know, and like they have such a little alcohol content that, you know, you're getting some water. You, you drink a hard seltzer and then you drink a couple waters, you know? I'm going to drink this. And I'm not going to be totally unhappy about it. Yeah, you know, it's, I think it's a pretty solid hard seltzer. But like I said, there is something. I mean, there I think, is something missing here. Yeah, I think it, it needs a little more complexity still. It's yes. a really simplified. Yes. It's really ba- It tastes like a, a seltzer. Like, it tastes like a raspberry seltzer with like a bit more sugar to it. I mean, there's no sugar, I think, in this. Um, but that just might be, you know, you might just be getting that from the alcohol that's derived from the mm-hmm. cane sugar. Um, Symbol's a really interesting way to 
way to put it because it does feel but some, very yeah, structurally. Yeah, some seltzers kind of taste like kind of flat like that. I, I really prefer the Bonavie Spike Seltzer, which I think actually does follow our, our farm-to-table rule, but I won't subject you to that because it's more of a mass corporate company. Hey, um, well, listen, dude, when we go back inside the Pivotal Films studios proper after... We're in um, the Pivotal Films lobby today. Yeah. We, but we can look, look, at the, look at this beautiful view of the, New Haven. We got the building closed, and, uh, you know, so we, we're going to stretch out in the lobby a little bit. Yeah. And, uh, but once we get back into the... Earl, the security guard's just staring at us while reading his New York post, unfortunately. He's just shaking his head. Yeah. And these fucking guys. Yeah. Um, so, Tom, typically at this point where you talk about a movie, and since we're pretty nosy... Nosy? Is that the correct term? I'm not going to say nosy. I'd say uh, pretty... Um, Lutin, high, 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 lutin. <laughs> What's the term I'm looking for? Highbrow. High, uh, try elitist. to be a high, highbrow elitist podcast at times. You would expect us to review Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And you saw Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah. Life gets in the way for some of us, other people. And we know some people don't let life stand in their way, and they ship their kids off to other places so they can see a movie. Well, yeah, but I don't have kids already, so. <laughs> Which is funny. I shouldn't have the responsibilities. I just, I just couldn't make it. That's, um, no it was between Once Upon a Time in Hollywood and going to the gym. I'm going to be honest with you. It was. I, I'm still excited. We're going to talk about Once yeah, Upon a yeah. Time in Hollywood. It's a, it, was, it got a strange schedule because it's so long. So it's not like one of those things where like every hour there's like a screening of it somewhere. It's a long, hard R movie. And Lion King is still making so much money. Lion King is now like the 36th highest grossing film of all time. Right. And I believe Aladdin is 38. They were not Disney. They were is, not moving Lion King screenings around to think, fit in more of this. Do you think Bob Eager has, has lost his erection this year? No. Oh, God, no. Okay. I mean, it's either that or because he just took so much Viagra in like <laughs> late last year that he was just ready to go for this year. But um, no, Disney should be very proud of itself. Yeah. Slash uh, ashamed of itself. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see what they do in the future. Like, in the next three years, like, revitalize, like, to, to like, ten years from now to get, like, a year like this again. Because mm-hmm. they're going to do, an- like, animated remakes of our live-action films. Oh, my God. That would be amazing. I would support, I would support that 100%. You know what? If, but if they did, like, their original, like, like here's an animated The Mighty Ducks. <laughs> oh, man, Mario. Now you're here's talking. An, here's an animated... Um, Swingers. That's a Miramax film, right? Yeah, so you just want to do animated Miramax movies? <laughs> Here's an animated sex lies and videotape. It'd be perfect. Yeah, I would see it. Um, you know, we haven't seen Farewell yet. just came out today. We'll be talking about that probably next week. Well, um, I mean, August is a weird month. It's a we'll low month. I think the only movie out in August that I'm really pumped for is Love and Asaja. And, and you don't, unfortunately. I mean, not unfortunately, but you just... You're not an Anton Yelchin guy like I was. I'm not going to see it. Yeah. If it came out in, like on streaming and you wanted to review it, I would spend the three ninety nine to rent it and yeah. watch it, and then would probably be good. I like. But all but August people, is going to be a big catch up month for us um, mm-hmm. before the onslaught of of films start. Um, I think Irishman is in September. I thought it was December. I, is it? I no. thought it was really late in the year. I don't know. But it is the first. Is, is the first September six? I think. Yeah. We get to. Talk about so, the beams. I'm talking about the all beams. the beams. I, I'm waiting to have like a three-hour conversation just about. Hold the this beams. all on in his head. Um, so instead, we're going to be talking about. Uh, I think throughout the year, we're going to be doing this. Um, well, yeah, this seems uh, to be uh, the media. Se- the movie media seems to be obsessed with this. 
which like I'm not I'm not a fan of because 2019's not over. No, and there's and, a ton of movies that are you know. Yeah, uh, and like we're we're not gonna do like we're we're talking about doing a best of. Uh huh. 20 years or, or 10 years or whatever. But we're, like, people are already starting to do that list, like, the best movies of the decade. It's like, motherfuckers. Yeah, decade's not over. Yeah. But, like, IndieWire released their, their best scores of the decade. Mm-hmm. Just Remember? the decade. And you know what? If a score comes along that would pop on my list, we're go- I'm going to mention it. Because nobody, these IndieWire assholes don't go like, hey, guys, by the way, we should have waited to the end of the year because the score's really good. But we will admit that. Well, yeah, because they'll just... We have humility. In this podcast. <laughs> and that's what IndieWire doesn't have. Yeah. Um, so IndieWire this week uh, released on July 26th. Uh, this is still this week, yeah. Released their 20 best movie scores of the decade. And overall, I thought it was a pretty solid list. Um, I didn't dislike a lot of the scores. I think Mudbound's score is not good. I will die absolutely 100%. No, I wouldn't... Metaphorically <laughs> die. I wouldn't actually die, but I would. I would stand my ground that the first man score is bad. I don't. I, 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 I mean, think the songs are good, but as a score, it overwhelms that film. I and, just don't think it's they captured. So to compare something like First Man to something like Interstellar, they're totally different movies. They have nothing to do with each Apollo, other. But they both take place in space. Even something like as passe as Apollo thirteen score. Yeah. Is. Is better, but they're it, both it but both Interstellar and First Man are on this list. The First Man's I'm supporting a James Horner score. That makes me sad. Oh Jesus! The First Man score um, seems so gimmicky with its instrumentation and stuff like that. I just kind of it's just pointlessly busy. Yeah, and not it didn't and it it overwhelmed. It has moments it, of good. It overwhelmed like, it from a volume standpoint, but it wasn't like. Um, thematically it wasn't, cohesive. It wasn't or it wasn't grand enough. It wasn't like interesting. Or, or interesting enough in a good way that matched what was the work that Damien Chazelle was was doing on screen. You know what I mean? With all those great practical effects and special effects and stuff like that, there was just a, a very gimmicky and plain score to me. I mean, and you could say something similar about the fucking... I don't understand what people are listening to. I mean, I'm happy that Trent Reznor has an Oscar. I don't get it. No, no, I don't get, network network no I don't get it. I don't get it. I don't get it at all. At all. I, pref- I like. Does- I prefer his work in. Um, even though I don't think it's great, I prefer the work in Girl, the Dragon girl. Tattoo, or Drag- Girl's Dragon Tattoo. Yeah, yeah. He did. Who did Gone Girl? Did he do Gone Girl? Too? I think he did. I don't remember the Gone Girl. But score, both of those score. Even if he did do Gone Girl, if he did, Gone Girl and Girl's Dragon Tattoo thematically match what Trent Reznor is going to do. The Social Network is a movie about starting Facebook. It should not have a score that sounds like a Nine Inch Nails record. No, and that's... It just shouldn't. No. It doesn't make any sense. And, you know, I think the J... I, Dario Marinelli's okay, but the Jane Eyre score is kind of dull for me. Um, I just hate everything about Beasts of Southern Wild. And so yeah. I don't think, oh, yeah. I don't think it's fair to hate that score, because re-listening to it, I was like, this isn't bad. But I just remembered how much I hated Ben Zietlin's entire creation. Mm-hmm. I think he's coming out with a new film this year, and I'm excited to... Not well. I mean, I will watch that, and I'm pretty sure I'm going to hate it just because I I fundamentally hate Beast of the Southern Wild. Um, yeah, I found um, Beast of the Southern Wild very. But beyond very and, and you know, there's some forgettable scores. I don't remember the Swiss Army Man score. Me neither. I just remember um, Daniel Radcliffe farting. I, like the Cloud Atlas score is kind of forgettable. Um, just, just like the Cloud Atlas movie. Yeah, 
Interstellar Beyond. Actually, Interstellar to me is pretty forgettable too. Well, because Interstellar cribs so much from the work that Hans Zimmer did for Inception and yeah. The Dark Knight that you're just kind of like, okay. I mean, it, it, but Inception is different. Kind of and, awesome. the thing, and the thing that's kind of cool is Inception's so di- different enough. In terms of it's, tone from Dark Knight, it's that so it stands, heavy. yeah, yes. it stands apart. And Interstellar just kind of feels like a continuation of Inception. I think Interstellar works as a score. It's just not doing anything overly interesting to move me, like to say this score is way better than any other score. But beyond that, like Carol, it's, it's not a score that's that's we're we're gonna now kind of talk about our top five scores. We made, yeah, day. we made lists. Um, uh, but things like Carol, I really enjoy. Um, childhood. Of the lead, our children of the leader, children, childhood of the leader, children, childhood of the leader has an incredibly solid score. Uh-huh. Um, Good time works really well with that film. It's mm-hmm. not my favorite style of music, but like, I'm absolutely a person who's like, you know, what, sorry, if okay. uh, the music works for the film, I'm I'm, I'm bored with it. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'm just glad Grand Budapest Hotel didn't show up or oh, everyone wanted. You know what's funny that I makes... saw Reddit like crying its mind out that Grand Budapest Hotel didn't make it. That on. seems like a weird oversight to me because I feel like that's the kind of movie that they would put on this list. Yeah, me too. Um, well, like along with everything else, I mean, I'm, it's, I think it's cool that the um, the uh, ghost story, the Daniel Hart score, made it on because well, it's kind of it's so spare and simple and, and, and piano. They put the much better Alexander Duplat score on on there anyway. Yeah, but I mean. I, it's not. That's not even my favorite Malick score of of that year. No, uh, of, but, but of, still, of, it's of a, that decade. I'm so. usually not a plot guy, but that that score works well for that film. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're gonna do our top five. Are I don't. Ready? I don't have any honorable mentions. I mean, I do. It would just be. Childhood just, of the I mean, leader. It would be mine. Would be like you know, if, uh, if a movie be, that I critically kind of forgot now in retrospect um, over the years. <laughs> over the, the year was probably if Beale Street could talk. So I watched to listen. I was like, "Oh, probably, probably wouldn't be my top set." Like, there's still three other scores I prefer to it from mm-hmm. that from last year, but Death of Stalin probably shouldn't have been. Yeah, Beale Street was. On. Death of Stalin just punches you so hard in the face that, like, at first you're like, "Oh, this is awesome," but then you realize it doesn't work in it's the same scope. Yeah. Just it's just yeah. kind of like watching Death of Stalin. Yeah, I mean, Beale Street was the one movie that I felt bad leaving off my list that would have I think normally have. If, if there's a top ten, I think it's six. Um, and then Inception was kind of the other one that was like crawling around, like where does where does this fit? But Inception, yeah, Inception, it's, it works. It's still a thriller. Inception's a thriller, and it has a thriller score. It's really fucking awesome. But I, I don't know if I can say more about the Inception score than it works amazingly well for that movie and kicks ass. Sometimes and that's, that's all you need. But I've got a bunch of scores here that do different and, things. And I think with like if we're doing something like best single tracks of a score uh, for the decade. Like, time works so yeah, massively well. Or Mumbasa. Um, and then, of course, I'd, I'd just randomly have like something like the Avengers theme from Alan Silvestri on there. But whatever. Is that on your list? No, it's not. Because I just really... But I really like the, the theme. The theme. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like, things that are pretty, you mm-hmm. know, tantamount and awesome in their you know, reduced moment. But I think overall, kind of... I brought the exception score, and I like it. Is it just a kind of blends? It's kind of like a single sound. Yeah, and I think watching if Beale Street kind of has Zimmer. it kind of has the same tone. Yeah, if Beale Street. But then I realized, like rewatching if Beale Street, how much that music and the sound design work together. Like that's hosting up a lot of stuff. I mean, we could do Beale Street. We could do a whole thing on Beale Street. We don't have to get into yeah. it. Uh, I mean, right, right, so let's just do. I mean, who do you want? You want? To I will. I'll start because you're the music guy. Uh, I have two crossovers at five and one. Okay. Uh, with the IndieWire list, and my first one, you have a prediction what my 
My number I, five is. I do not have do you, one. Come on. I don't have one. I don't know. My number five from 2014. Um, it, uh, well, that's a, it, released, it was released in America in 2014, right? Yeah, it was released in America in 2014. Jonathan Glazer film. Uh, Mika Levy's Under the Skin. Oh, score. okay. That was on. Yeah, that was on there. Under the Skin is an interesting film for me. Mm-hmm. I don't truly enjoy it, but mm-hmm. I appreciate it. It's kind of like this nice, solid experimental art feature. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think Mika Levy's score, what it does, is, is Glazer kind of does some things. Like, he's very morose with that film. Like, it's a morose kind of film, and it's, it's slow and methodic. And he doesn't do a lot to kind of enhance something with the horror mm-hmm. of it. And he doesn't have to, because it it's not that type of film. But that Mika Levy score kind of adds on, it's kind of like desperate, um, as we talked about before with horror, like that brutality or, or brutishness, like that score so in your face mm-hmm. that it creates this dissonance, um, on, you know, on, on many levels mm-hmm. that works in cohesion. It's so forwardly, um, I don't want to say human, but kind of like animalistic in the way it is. And Under the Skin is an animalistic movie in a lot of ways, but it's not. Mm. You know, Glazer's not presenting with that. So I think it, for me, scores work best when they work in absolute cohesion with a film, either uh-huh. telling the tale or in terms of adding a different layer uh-huh. onto what thematically <laughs> a film's trying to do. And for me, Under the Skin's kind of like a personification of that. Um, not really the correct term there, but uh, exemplary form of that um, for the decade. Mm-hmm. Cool. I, I mean, I like that score. I, I liked Under the Skin a lot. Um, but it's just, it's not my, it's not no. my bag. Yeah. Not my jam, as they would say. Well, the entire, the that, the entire kind of sort of like horror-esque score too is always my thing. Well, I just, I mean, it's one of those movies that I've always kind of um, viewed as a curiosity more as it's like oh I'm happy Scarlett Johansson gets to still do things like this instead of just be second or fifth of the fifth Avenger that just has guns I'm happy that she still gets to make kind of semi interesting yeah she's definitely the fifth Avenger because she's getting a feature film not a she's 100% the fifth Avenger yeah Hawkeye's definitely the sixth and I'm pretty sure Hawkeye sh- just has a Disney plus show and I'm pretty sure that Florence Pugh is going to be the star of this movie I think it's going to... So, you We're know. having speculation there. I think it's definitely doing a transition. Like, they want to have Black Widow come back, but they're like, no, it's going to be Florence Pugh, even though... Remember, she, like, she was a person. See? Backstory. Um, do you want to do your whole list, or do you want to just go shot for shot? No, uh, no. you just do, you do your five, and then you do your four. We'll do, like, we did the top ten, where we kind of, like, rolled, like... Oh, okay. Yeah. Like, fantasy football rules. Yeah, yeah. Sure. We'll draft it. Um, my number five is... Uh, A score from a movie that had has the the Lion King score is pretty good. I agree. <laughs> has um, the the uh, musician the the right the the writer and the and the director are are, are on your list also, um, but I'm going in a different direction. So um, it's the Master, 2012, Paul Thomas Anderson's 2012 movie. Um, I really struggled with this with with the Master. Um, until like I watched the master again last night and I was like oh yeah yeah, yeah. No, it's got to be the master over a bunch of other stuff um, the I think the great thing about this movie and I think the great thing about the score specifically is that the score the first thing we get from this movie is you get that great wide 70 millimeter film shot of Joaquin Phoenix's Freddie Quells just laying on that ship and you get the and it pushes yeah. back into the ocean blah blah 
you get the sense that the score is really trying to do something specific. And then it doesn't know what to do anymore. It almost seems like it did something wrong, and then it comes back, and then it, it fades in like a wave, you know what I mean? And then it disintegrates for like a minute. Like the whole thing comes apart. The score is so strange, it almost seems like it's trying to interpret the movie as it's going on, and it thinks it gets the, the emotional like complexity that's happening it's like oh I get it and then the emotion switches again to something weirder and then the score just goes and the score becomes really strange too it's almost like this tug of war between mm, the movie yeah, no, and the score um, which kind of represents a lot of the kind of yeah. emotional conflict on film and it's just really it makes for a really thrilling listen in and of itself but it makes the, mo- the movie is so unpredictable and the score I think feels the same way and helps that unpredictability along. Like you never know how you're supposed to feel about literally anything that's happening in the master. And I think the score is like a really big part of, of conveying that specific emotion. It's not really good at conveying any other emotions besides just frustrated confusion. And talk about it. Looking at the Oscar. What a, this is a great score. Um, I, I struggled with the fact that this is, this was one of the ones that kind of barely missed for me too. Uh-huh. Um, the problem is I'll, I didn't want to put a lot of repeats on this. You could, I mean, I could make... if I, I'm pretty sure... I could make a case for, like, four Johnny Greenwood scores yeah, on the this same, list. Yeah, the same. So, um, I mean... <laughs> yeah, I think, I think I'd be three, maybe. I think I'd be three, but yeah. But I'm sure if someone was just like, oh, also, you know, Inherent Vice is really good, I'd be like, fuck, Inherent Vice Inherent is Vice pretty is, good. I thought about Inherent Vice, but I was like, because I was like, mm, debating it with you're never really here, but mm-hmm. I kind of, like, yeah. melted off. But, like, it just it's such a... He works so well with whoever he's he's working he, like whoever is, mm-hmm. is the director. But like the, there's such a synergy there. It's all, it's like an editor you know filmmaker mm-hmm. synergy that you get really good editor filmmakers relationships like um Thelma Shushumak Shush uh, I can't remember her last name and and Scorsese. Scorsese. Oh yeah, um, yeah, yeah. You know those really are uh, Tarantino's old editor who just passed away who passed away a few years back. I forget his name, um, but I know who you're talking about. We. I feel like we should know this stuff off the top of our head. I don't know. I'm sleeping. Uh, but yeah, but. no, like there's such a great synergy. Like that's one of the few times you see like a really solid synergy between you know filmmaker and and, and composer. Mm-hmm. Um, so I guess I'll go again because we're you know. We don't worry, Argo got nominated that year, not the master. Yeah, that's I mean that's we yeah, can. Alexander there was a, the Ringer did a whole big thing. Life of Pi. <laughs> a few. Anna Karenia. What was it? When was it? I forget when they were doing. Yeah, Karenia's score wasn't that. that but bad, they though. kind of redid. They re. They reawarded most of those Oscars from two thousand the two you know the Masters year, and they were just like you could just give the Master all of these now, and I'm sure the Academy would like to have all of those back. My number four though, is a movie from a movie that's going to show up on my list. Actually, all of these are movies that showed up somewhere in our conversations. Um, is Hanan Townsend's. Score two thousand score for two thousand fifteen Terrence Malick movie The Knight of Cups. Um, I do not remember the score. This was a very easy one for me. The first, the top three were my my top four were very easy. I just had to figure out which order I wanted to put them in. Um, The Knight of Cups is a really horrifyingly interesting movie in the sense that it is simultaneously nonsensical and one of just the great film experiences of my life. Um, the score, because it's Malick, it's hard to kind of tell what is score and what is, like, 
um, previously written orchestrations of, of music. So there's a song, um, Exodus, that kind of plays through the whole thing, which is really beautiful and lovely. And, um, you know, it's one of the great uses of classical, of classical music in, in film, I think. Um, but, like, Knight of Cups is like a cosmic mystery. And, like, Christian Bale's character spends the whole time looking for something. Like, literally looking for something. He's just looking around the, <laughs> the whole time. He never stops moving. He's always looking around. And the score, it almost seems like... I'm trying to... I, I want to visualize this for people of like how I hear the score. It's almost like the score... You're looking up and the score is the floor. And like these drops of sound that kind of come in are like Christian Bale's like footsteps. Like looking around. It adds... It adds so much depth to like the biblical mystery that he's trying to grapple with here. Um, that it's just it's it's a really compelling score. It's not there's not a lot happening. Um, it's a lot of droning, um, a lot of kind of Middle Eastern qualities to it, um, which I think lends itself to that kind of feeling like there's something more going on here than just what's down here on earth. You know what I mean? There's something, there's a spiritual level that Christian Bale's character is trying to attain through these relationships with these women, the relationship with his father, and then, um, you know, his, his walking through his life searching for what those, the clues for the, what that mystery is. Um, I, find it very, I find it very fascinating. I can't wait to talk more about it when we binge it, talk about it on my list. Yeah, that's the one problem is, is two of my movies on this list are, are show up later on my actual list mm. and score is a big part of it so I will, I will keep it. Yeah, neat. yeah, yeah. Um, so my number four is a 2018 film and if anybody has great memory uh, of my 2018 winner, they'll know that score is um, from the sadly recently deceased Scott Walker mm. um, from Brady Corbett's Vox Lux. I talked about Childhood of Leader, which was pretty close on this list, and they're both are phenomenal scores that, that kind of carry a lot of the emotive sense that Brady Corbett's doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but we talked about how Fox Lux, I, I love that movie, but he Brady Corbett kind of misses the mark sometimes of what he's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And I feel that <clears throat> this movie, this score, picks up the ball. Like I feel Scott Walker understood more what Brady Corbett was trying to say than Brady Corbett was able to do. Well, it's interesting um, that we're doing these two movies together because there's a cosmic mystery to this movie yeah. also. You know what I mean? Where like all of this stuff has to mean more than it does or else like what the hell is the point? And, and everything, like just, just you know, before that, that really horrific school shooting scene, you just have, you know, Nightwalk and Prelude play and it just, it, it doesn't carry the sense of foreboding but it, it makes, it in some way makes you uneasy. Mm-hmm. And then opening credits... Uh, that just kind of lends you from like what the fuck just happened, but kind of like builds you into the film that's to come. That's that's a completely sort of separate being, but still carries you know the the thematic, the the emotional mm. weight of what happened. Um, and then Anthem just masterfully mixes in wrapped up, you know, oh, when she fantastic yeah, in yeah. the cityscape. And when I heard that, I was like, this fucking score. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then, and then going to yearning and terrorist and especially like druggy, mm-hmm. um, you know, those, those songs just 
art so expertly combined. Like, I think seeing, you know, Natalie Portman and Jude Law drugged out of their mind in her hotel room looks good, but having druggy play over that mm-hmm. just burns it more. Yeah. You know, it just, just creates this sense of, of manic intensity. Well, and it kind of justifies the visual gimmick that he's doing there. Yes. Um, which he needs because he's a gifted filmmaker, but he's not there yet. Yeah, exactly. So he's, it was interesting that he was able to tie he's, him. He's got to be, what, 40? He's in his 40s, I think, Brandon Corbin? I didn't think he was that old. He's, oh, he's 30. There you go. So he's pretty old. <laughs> <laughs> What's your number three, Mario? Damn. You're doing good. I'm fine. I have a podcast. You got a podcast. Yeah. Brady Corbin doesn't have a podcast. I bet you I could bench more than you, Brady Corbin. <laughs> Um, my number three mm-hmm. is uh, my one Johan Janison score. Mm. The also tragic. Wow, a lot of a lot of people didn't didn't make it late in life. I mean, Scott Walker was decent age, but still fairly, still fairly mid early mid seventies, early mid seventies. I think seventy three. Mm-hmm. But Johan Janison was was definitely young. young. Yeah. Um, the two thousand fifteen score for Sicario. Yeah, that was. A- uh, yeah, this is just. You know, this film is burning on every fiber. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would say if we're doing if we're doing best songs of best single pieces of score, um, the beast is you know, just probably right my number two. What happens in that part? Uh, that's the part where it's just kinda of carrying over like the desert. Oh okay. it's just that kinda of like that, that mm-hmm. it's kinda of that tone that kinda of carries throughout the entire yeah, yeah, film. Okay. All right. But it just has this mass to it. And, you know, just with well, yeah, him. That's, that's but, you know, does. when you have Villain the Wave, um, you have Deacons and you have Giannis and just working together. It uh-huh. creates this, like, unbearable weight. Oh, yeah. And that film is just weight. Yeah, and it builds and it gets worse. And it just yeah. keeps getting worse. But that score is so harmonic with with every single ounce of tension. It feels like an elephant on your chest. Well, it's so funny that he did the theory of everything too because that score like is Johan Johansson like perfectly it's got all of his stuff in it you know what I mean but it's also like a fairly lightweight biopic about Stephen Hawking yeah so there's moments where the score like wants to gather that weight and kind of expose like a hole in the universe but it really kind of can't so that's I mean Sicario and then later in fucking I would, I would, Mandy I would say to me Mandy though has more of like a um, an aggression to it, but it's not oh, heavy. Yeah. But it's not he- as heavy. No, but that's like heavy. Not it's like the music's heavy, but yeah. it's not like fucking ripping your heart out. Well, Mandy sounds like the end of the world. Yeah, this, but it's it, it's like operatic. Is, it's operatic. emotional. Yeah, it's, it's op- like emotionally like, like dense. Mandy's operatic and and melodramatic, mm. and, it's, and it works extremely well. Oh, Whereas Sicario is just like this is the fucking dirt. Mandy's on the ten. Yeah, but the, yeah, Sicario's great. Yeah. I love Johan Johansson. I wish there was going to be lots more movies with him doing the score for it, but alas, there is not. Um, my number three is a movie we already talked about twice. Um, it's Ryuichi Sakamoto and Alvin Noto's 2015 score for The Revenant. Um, we kind of went over the score a bunch um, when we talked about it. I, I think both, uh, mine episode specifically like dealt very heavily with the score. I mean, I just... 
really think the more I watch it, and I, I watched it again, um, not because of we were going to make this list, just because it showed up in the same spot. I was like, oh, there's Wireless. a Revenant. I was like, oh, I, I, gotta I feel watch like again. i got to watch this movie now. Um, and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood kind of made me want to go do some more Leonardo DiCaprio work. First film since? Which we will do, uh, which I love. And we're going to do some more Leonardo DiCaprio next week. Um, but it's just like, it's this... It's, we talk about the beach. We talk about the beach. I like the beach. I think the beach is fine. Um, but I mean, I, I, it's I, minor garland. I don't love it, but I like it. Yeah, the beach is no, good. it's fun. It's just a good movie. Um, you know, it's uh, the revenant. It's like the the score is like it's like the sound of the earth. You know what I mean? A lot of times, it's just kind of this. It's alive. It's breathing. It's like re- it's like just pulsing. It's just. I know you kind of have said that it like marries itself too closely to the. Like oh, to and I I think I agree with you to like the sound design and to like the 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 natural sounds that like are the movie, but that kind of feels like the point to me. No, I agree. And like the reason it like I really enjoy the score for this, and the reason it wouldn't show up on my list are kind of like because it blends in so well. I think our new tube is just so everything has this kind of like fabric quality. And I I talked about this when I was on my list that everything it makes this kind of blend into like a perfect cinematic experience. Yeah. And I don't say the score gets lost in it, but the score just becomes a component. Mm-hmm. The score in itself becomes a piece in this kind of orchestra. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. And I don't disagree with you, but for me, oh, that's like a, it almost seems like magic. I'm not shaking my head at this. No, no, it, the movie was on your goddamn fucking yeah. list. If you really hated the score, <laughs> I'm sure you find a way to get it off of here. And you, and you put something else on. I feel like the score is just not doing it. I got to put the beach on here. Yeah. Who did the score for the beach? I don't know. I feel like we have to do a beach bonus episode now. Um, my number two is a movie we also just talked about. Um, it is the... Brian Eno. Oh, Brian Eno? I love Brian Eno. They should have put that on my list. Brian Eno, John, Kane, John Cale, and Angelino, Angelo Badalamenti. Who did Lynch, like... Actually, that's pretty you, good. Thinking back, that probably score is probably pretty good. Yeah, we're going to have to watch the beach <laughs> and just see what's up. Um, it is the Stuart Staples Tinder Stick score for Claire Denis High Life. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone who has listened to our last episode where... I, Except me. I pontificated who suddenly, who suddenly remembers <laughs> that we talked about High Life a few weeks ago. The, the thing that blows my fucking mind about the score is that... And it might not be clear the first time, because I don't think it was clear to me the first time I watched it. I think it was only after, like, thinking about it and then listening to the score a bunch of times. Here's another thing about, for me, for scores, is that I, if a score really grabs the shit out of me, I'm going to go get it. And I'm going to listen to it all the time on its own, and it is going to bring up, like, the, it's going to bring the movie back to me. High Life is one of those movies. The great thing about High Life, though, the thing that's so interesting about High Life, and my no, my number one and number two is um, kind of go outside the boundaries of what a score is supposed to do. This score kind of acts like a narrator. Like, it is... It's, like it's, like it's kind of like it's reading you, like, the story of what's happening. Um... It's, it's like it's giving you details that you can't see, but like in a language that you can't understand. 
Um, so the um, but it's in a language that you can't read. It's basically no, what you're you saying? just you have to hear it and experience it. And it adds. Thank you, Death Cat for cutie. It adds. <laughs> it adds depth to, um, like all of these scenes. Like I've talked about it before. Like the rape of boys. You get that hi hat hit when like something's going down, and then. It just, you get that soprano sax just like screaming over the top of it. But the soprano sax is not necessary. It's the screaming soprano sax. It's not necessary. That bludgeoning drum sound, which sounds like it's in 6-8, but is actually in 4-4, four, four, it's just leaving, it's, a, it's behind the beat and leaving out a, uh, leaving out a beat. Starts, it hits drums on 2-3-4, which is just weird. Um, it's not necessary because the punching each other you have that that visual representation of of a beat you know what i mean you have the audio representation of a scream but there's this extra screaming and there's this extra beating and like what is it there for and for me because the whole movie is just there's just all this stuff the whole movie is about the buried layers of like of of a person you know what i mean Digging through the shit of your life to kind of have something miraculous grow out of it. Um, and the score, I think, is it, like illustrates that. It's running, it's like a running dialogue simultaneously with the movie. It's so fascinating. It blows my fucking mind. I love it. I fucking love this movie. I'm, it's so funny because I don't even, part of me feels like this is a worse year for movies because my number one is already done. It's like something would really have to come out and like just Kill kick my here. ass like all over like Terrence Malick's movie like The Hidden World would have to be the greatest movie ever or what are they, what is it The Hidden is it The Hidden, Hidden World? World yeah yeah um because I love Terrence Malick and so <laughs> he would have to just just drop a fucking bomb of a movie on me to displace High Life as my number one movie of the year because it just keeps giving me stuff you know what I mean. So wait, you think High Life might pop would have popped up on your list? We're gonna talk about that. We're gonna talk about uh, that. I might want to do my next one. Right. A little bit. Well, to counteract that, earlier this year, speaking of films we talked about this year, it's not a film from this year that shows up on my list. There was a score I liked from a particular artist, <laughs> um, and you said I don't think the score is that good. Uh huh. And this artist and this director worked together uh, before. Okay. In a film that shows up later on my list. Uh-huh. Um, and, and the score is a big part of why it shows up on my list. So I don't want to talk about too much. And this is the one I think you'll be like, oh. 2014's uh-huh. Disaster Piece score for It Follows. Okay. Um, just to, to speak why am shortly. I, why would you think I'm going to say anything about it? Because once you see it, you're like, oh. I guess you still haven't seen it, but no, I read a bunch of the comments. A lot of the people had said that it follows should have been on there. Really, I didn't read the comments for the IndieWire list. Yeah, I, I mean, maybe one. <laughs> maybe one person said it. Maybe it was you. I don't know. Mario at Pivotal Film says, <laughs> um, "No, it follows is is a, is a movie that really strikes a lot of chords with me. Um, we'll 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 talk extensively about that in months." Um, but this score is just so a prominent function of that. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the main title piece is, is what I think possibly one of the best horror pieces 
like single pieces of horror in ever. Mm-hmm. Um, it stands up there with with the scores for something like Halloween and Nightmare on Elm Street or Friday the Thirteenth, which you know by themselves are pretty minor scores, but when you or a fiend for horror, um, like when horror plays such a big component in your life, and I wouldn't, I made this list more as like my top five favorite and not what I consider the top five best. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. My number one I is didn't either. my number one's absolutely both, like without a doubt. Uh, I actually will. I'll disagree harder on that than I will about <laughs> this because I don't know what this is. Because on purpose, I haven't yeah. watched a second of this movie. This movie is 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 all about tension and all about ramping up fear in the sense of of the dread that you see that is there that is ever coming and ever present. Um, must speak more extensively on that. This score absolutely underlines that mm-hmm. while doing so with respect to artists like Goblin um, with you know to, to John Carpenter to to all the other kind of horror greats and, and, and modernizes it to you know a 2014 sort of synth wavy um, you know perspective it without this score this film is good really really solidly made um, more than competently made but this score puts it over the top mm-hmm. um, and it's just it's just a piece that is just it sticks with me and and I can sit there and and I can hear pieces of the score in my head yeah, yeah, yeah. and I'll know exactly what moment in the I film know the it fuck is feeling my friend yeah, yeah. Um, but once again I'm I'm not talking about a lot right now because it plays such a component part in in what will be on the pivotal list mm-hmm. uh, similarly my number one which I will argue. Uh, and IndieWire will also argue is the best film score of the decade mm-hmm. um, is the 2017 score to the Paul Thomas Anderson film The Phantom Thread by Johnny Greenwood. I would argue that this is one of the all-time greatest scores, too. Huh. Okay. Yeah. It's, you know... And, and again, you and, don't have to go too deep into it, because... It's, it's hard to go too deep into this, but, like, Phantom... Um, but it's just... It carries for me this, this sense of change in the self, I guess, is it's, it's the weird way of saying it. Um, listening to it makes me... Like, listen to this... It, it, very few times do I listen to a score um, removed completely from the context of the film. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, like, like, you know, occasionally there's songs here and there, but very, you know, not very often can I listen to a score just contained by itself mm-hmm. and, and without any thoughts of the film, like in all of the score. You know, but like things like you know, sandalwood or you know, um, the, the House of Woodcock just exists into themselves, and they enhance that film so much. Like that mm. film to me is near perfect as well. Um, it's it's pretty high up on my list. Um, and and Phantom Thread Three is is just yeah. a miraculous piece. I mean, you know, you get four variations of I believe four or five variations of Phantom Thread, but mm-hmm. that third one just a. <clears throat> just that weight to it Mm -hmm. you know and maybe it doesn't work as complementary with the film as I typically like Mm -hmm. Um, 
and it, and at times maybe it doesn't carry the same emotion. I, I think it kind of breaks a lot of the rules I look for in a score, mm-hmm. but it's such a trans like it's such a score that that transfixes me into a different place. Mm. Um, I don't know. I, w- I would consider it just an absolutely great, like one of the greatest pieces of, of modern music, even uh-huh. uh, like separate from the film. Mm. I um I don't. It's funny. I don't disagree with anything you're saying. It just doesn't hit me in the same way that yeah. It, that it's it's an you. emotional. Never cursed is like the only part, the only piece of music in that whole thing that really I think changes the face of what the movie is. <clears throat> I think it's in a lot of ways it kind of this movie for me is I think how you feel about the Revenant, where it works so symbiotically that it almost like the score seems to not matter at and I, all. I think because it's just it's just doing the thing that it sh- should be doing. Like I mean, this the score. I think sometimes I think the other problem for this one too is that like sometimes the score is playing and then like Daniel Day Lewis will say something and I'll be like, oh yeah, there's other things happening. Like yeah, like, no, he that's... just consumes like every piece of air that this movie has that the score just kind of submerges under his presence sometimes, um, which is weird. But also, kind of, it's what makes this movie so, like, fucking fascinating. And it's it's kind of like uh, it's it's not I want to say dysfunctional. In fact, Phantom Thread. No, for dysfunctional me. is good. It, dysfunctional kind of works, but like everything's working on such separate levels, from a cinematography standpoint to a direction standpoint to the acting. Um, the writing's pretty solid. I, the writing, I, I'm not in love with that yes. as much as I should be. Um, and the music. And, and, you know, the sound design, costume design, everything's working, like, in this own... Like, you could look at a fragment of this film and excise everything else from it, and it is intoxicating by that self to mm-hmm. me. Um, yes, I agree with you. And it does work. It combines to make a really great experience, um, but it, it, is, it is kind of dysfunctional, that the fact that all these things are so overwhelming. Like, this is, it's just an overwhelming film. Yeah, it almost seems like when you're watching it... Um, it's every like an assault. Piece, every piece tries to top the other piece, like as it comes in, and just like with the same guys made this. Like Paul Thomas Anderson shot it and wrote it and directed it, but it seems like he's trying to and, outdo yeah. his own direction, like with the with cinematography. The cinematography. Yeah. And then like Johnny Greenwood seems like he's like, oh, I gotta get, I gotta get in here, so he's like muscling in, but it, that but just it, inspires him to shoot something, <laughs> shoot something crazy or write and it, something and weirder. So like that dog pile sense works just with what the film is. Like, yeah, because it gets, the story is that. It gets to the point, and then the fork comes out, and you're like, oh my god, yeah. what the hell is happening? I mean, I think we'll, as we get further up on our list, some of our, movie, some of our list movies will be an entire episode. And that's going to be one of them, for sure. Yeah, yeah, Because it doesn't show up on your list. Um, no, no, and, and um, yeah, that, that'll be one of them. It doesn't show up on my list, but I appreciate it. Um, my appreciation of it is is very intense. Yeah, I'm. It's a movie that I'm glad exists on the earth, uh, which I think other people are too. I feel like the Phantom Thread is kind of, or Phantom Thread is is, is coming back. Give it, give it five years, and pe- people are going to be like, because oh, look how he's end of year list that people are going like, oh right, Phantom Thread, we're Shape of Water. <laughs> right. Well, so I was, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Shape of Water, and when I talk about my my fifty three, and I like, think Shape of Water's okay. I think Shape of Water's fine. But it didn't deserve to beat <laughs> Vengeance Thread yeah. for anything. Um, which gets us to my number one. The Alexander Duplatt score for The Shape of Water? For The Shape of Water, yeah. No, 
No, I hated that score, like adamantly. That I almost, I almost me. made, I almost made my typical joke of, of saying something else and making that. They're that all score. Ag- Alexander Duplat, number one through five. He's just <laughs> the best. Um, in we talked in 2018. Went to we went to the movies. I don't remember which episode it is. It was an A block. We went to the, the movies. Cine one two three four. And we saw the only movie I think we've seen at Cine one two three four during. Yeah, um, it is. Uh, At Eternity's Gate, Julian Schnabel's Vincent Van Gogh biopic. Uh, the score is largely piano-based, written and performed by Tatiana Lusovskaya. Um, there's a violin in there, too, occasionally. Um, you said before that you think that um, Phantom Thread is one of... You think, just think it's a great piece of modern music. It's you know a, a, a great film score. It kind of stands outside of the traditions of film scores. Um... This is one of those scores for me. It's one of those pieces of music for me. You kind of asked before about, you know, would High Life be on my list? I think High Life, um, at the end of this podcast, when we go to do our number ones, I think we should take stock and see if anything that we like wasn't on our list that we've seen, you know, would show up on our list. I think this is this definitely displaces something um, from the bottom. I don't know if it's the greatest movie I've ever seen. I think it's a, I think it's a wonderful film. Um, but what does the place from the bottom? Maybe like accent. No, wouldn't it can never replace accidental terms. Maybe like um, catch me if you can, something like that. Probably catch me if you can. Um, accidental tours. No, accidental tours is very important to me. Accidental tours should probably be higher than it is, but I just don't like it as a movie at all. So, do you know like an eternal sunshine, the spotless mind? I do. They excise that part of that person's brain. I want to do that to you. The, the accidental tourist part of my brain? No, it's a big deal. Can't get rid of it. Um, <laughs> you just fundamentally change as a person. I'm just all aboard, I'm like just, John Kasich, 2020. I'm just, I'm just a better person. Oh, man, if, he's, if he showed up. Oh, we're getting off topic. We're getting off topic. Um, if, yeah, if he showed up as a Democrat, it'd be great. Well, I'm going to do this too. This looks like fun. Being mean to Joe Biden's the best. <laughs> Let's all do it. Um, if it does, if if that happens, and I think it will happen, um, it's going to be lo- it's going to be one hundred percent because of the score. Um, this is not just a film score. It doesn't do anything. Um, its job is not to convey mood or atmosphere. Um, it doesn't answer. It's not. Its job is not to answer questions of emotions. Although I do think it does that. Um, this film score is very literally um, Vincent Van Gogh's mind speaking to the viewer. We, through this film score, we have access to um, this character's psyche. Um, and what we see Willem Dafoe doing as Vincent Van Gogh is responding to... He is looking at the world around him his mind is is conveying the beauty of these things to him through this music and he is painting it um it is like one of the most utterly unique and exciting pieces of music i've ever encountered in my life um it is in a lot of ways it's kind of like it's like life in its purest form, you know what I mean? It's like a, it's like poetry before like you get to write it down. It's music before you like 
pick up a guitar or start banging on a piano or something like that. It's, it's that it's everything just in his head. It's all the remarkable things that are going on in his head. And it's, it's, that's what we hear. That's what it is. And it's, um, it's just utterly fascinating and utterly breathtaking. And, and it's, there's not a lot of things like it in film. I defy someone to find like a music that is solo piano. That is also improvisatory. Um, like the, the, her score has ended up on a bunch of people's top scores of like the, like the last 20 years, mm-hmm. like the arcade fire score, which has a lot of cheating solo piano because it just cribs from other classical music and pretends like it's its own because it's arcade fire. Um, like that Daft Punk Tron Legacy score, it's just Daft Punk. Yeah, there's just Daft Punk music. They're like, oh, that's a good score. It's like, it's like well, no, it's just a Daft Punk really album. Daft Punk. This is this is something else, and that's kind of like how I feel about the High Life score, where it is not a, it stops being a score at some point and becomes something else. You know what I mean? And I think it's a lot like how you feel about the Phantom Thread score, where it stops being, it stops working with the film, and it becomes like a different, it becomes a, a different thing. It becomes a different work of art, um, a broader work of art, a denser work of art. Um, and I don't think you get that a lot in, in, in film scores. You know yeah. I mean? We talked about Hans no. Zimmer before. Hans Zimmer makes awesome scores, but he's never going to get this depth of feeling and emotion um, and wonder into one of his scores. You're he's only ever going to... He's just like, fuck you, buddy. <laughs> Just playing his guitar right now. Yeah. Christopher Nolan gets his tenet score and he's like, What is this? And Zimmer's like, I'm not changing it, bitch. <laughs> Why are you just guitar riffing through this whole thing? <laughs> um, and the thing, yeah. the thing that, like, this is another score that kind of melts into that movie for me. I mean, I remember, like, but I think it's just like the, those the images on that film just like are so striking that it's just, mm-hmm. it's such, so complimentary. And, it, and I think that's sometimes that the score really works is when it just, enhances everything well they're representative of one another you know what i mean so like we can't see what's literally inside his head so like we are given this score to kind of translate that feeling and i I think the moment that really works too is like it it swells a bit uh like that piano score i think it's a piano score that's going on when the he talks about the images having depth that 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 shot in that movie that Mm -hmm. i love and, and you know the camera turns to show um like painting a sculpture, as I mm-hmm. talked about before. But yeah, like, yeah. It gives you the black and white to kind of like get rid of the 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 image you're seeing, and instead make it just like the depth, and that kind of swells. Mm-hmm. You know, it kind of swells like make that an exact sort of idea. Yeah, yeah. Um, very fascinating. This is a very good conversation. I'm glad we I had agree. It. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're um, very good. Let's not for Joe Biden. Get... <laughs> Been a bad week for Biden. Everyone says he did well because he didn't get. Literally crushed under the boot of Kamala Harris. Of Kamala Harris. <laughs> who, who got... Who got crushed, crushed under the boot, boot of Tulsi Gabbard, who my daughter loves. Oh, no. Um, who actually had a really good night. Who she did. sounded like... But um, she, she, um, she, 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 at one point, did not like gay people, and we can't be sure she's not still kind of on that train. Which is funny, because I think a lot of people are comparing her to, like, Pete Buttigieg. And her, like, progressivism, and her and how just, young she is, and she was in the military, and all this other stuff. And Pete Buttigieg is like... Jesus. I'm from Indiana, so I can't yell about this. I have to give up about this argument. Much like our vice president gave up when he tried to do a same-sex ban for like two days when he was Indiana governor. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Well, because Mike Pence is a coward. Yeah. Yes, he is. We both we all agree with that. Um, we will be right back with our number fifty-three. Yes, correct. I actually know it this time. Yeah. Wow. We just didn't talk about it before. Well, I yeah. did. I said fifty-three. Did you? Yeah. I wasn't. Listening. You were listening. I was just pumped up for our score conversation. Okay. Well, Tom, I subjected you to just one 12-ounce Bestie Hard Seltzer, which we both, even afterwards, you said was not bad. It, it just wasn't the end of the world. It just no. has, yeah, has, yeah. has absurd emptiness to it, which I think hard seltzers need. Some hard seltzers are aggressively bad. This one's aggressively a seltzer. Mm-hmm. But we're a podcast that drinks beers. It has to have the word beer in it every week. Mm-hmm. And so we are going to drink for our list episodes, the list part of our episode, uh... Good friends from East Rock Brewing. Yep. Their newest beer, the second in their line of Gozes, which apparently they're brewing with lager yeast. So I wonder if they're brewing as a lager. Because hmm. they had said early on they're only going to make lagers. Yes. Um, and I so I wonder if the process to make the because typically a Gose is done in an ale style. It's like mm-hmm. top fermented. I think lagers are bottom fermented. Or maybe it's opposite. Um, so this is their Blackberry Gose, the second in their line of Gozes. Following the Meyer Lemon, which Ooh, you adore. I love it. This is potentially one of my top five beers. I've had this. It's It came out about three weeks ago. I have had six, six, six pints of this since it came out. Lovely. Good color to it. Yep. Let's taste it. Um, it's good. It's just huh? not as upfront as the. As no, the it's not as upfront. As the Meyer Lemon. But it's it's got a lot of that blackberry. Mm. It does have a lot of blackberry. It's it's, a bla- it's it's definitely a goes with blackberry. The problem with the blackberry is that, and not a problem necessarily. It's, it's like a really flat flavor. Like it's very sweet and, <laughs> it's like and a- nice, but it's 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 um, it's not a punchy flavor. You no, know yeah, I, mean? I think the lemon and the salt in, in the goes kind of like complements each other, and this is just kind of like an interesting balance. It's mm. really balanced. To me, and it has like that slight, kind of starts sweet, but then it has like a puckery finish. Yeah. I mean, that Meyer lemon is an, an assault. It is a glorious assault, but it is. Oh, I enjoy the Meyer lemon, but to me, this rough. is just so well balanced. Yeah, for, this is a good beer. For what is a sour. And that's our podcast. Talk to you guys next week. Me and Tom are going to go get three more growlers of this. <laughs> okay. So. The deep sigh that comes in. Talking about movies. <laughs> Don't have a lot to say about this film. It's a film which I believe a common description of it is that its first half is pretty spectacular. And its second half is, is a lot of people say bad or serviceable. Mostly I read just people hate the second half and I think the second half is pretty serviceable. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is a movie from a director I don't really like. As a general concept. Mm-hmm. There's a few of his movies I absolutely love. Um, this is one I really, really enjoy, but that is one of the very few war movies to really get to me on a different level than any other war movie was able to. Mm-hmm. To kind of decry the fundamental lunacy and absurdity that is war. Mm-hmm. Um, from a director... Well, I will stand by the comment, isn't that good? <laughs> and this is the Depends 19... What he's doing. Depending on what he's doing. Yeah. The 1987 Stanley Kubrick film, Full Metal Jacket.
Charlie's hit every major military target in Vietnam and hit them hard. In other words, it's a huge shit sandwich and we're all gonna have to take a bite. Full Metal Jacket is sort of two films in once. Um, some people call it jarring. I think it, it works. Um, it, it's necessary. Uh, mm-hmm. it, at its first half is a boot camp picture of toxic masculinity as Joker, played by famed Dark Right Rises, Dark Dark Right Rises, Dark Knight Rises actor Matthew Modine. Um, Kind of goes through his boot camp experience, where Vincent D'Onofrio, playing Gomer Piles, mercilessly abused and is attacked by his uh, gunnery sergeant, our good old Arlie Emery, um, and then by his fellow recruits. And it kind of perpetrates this entire idea of, of especially Vietnam, mm-hmm. which is that just like the other lunacy of Vietnam, leading into. Just a depressing, gross sort of second half to show you that these people who have bred this toxic kind of ideology now kind of are living in a world that's just equally as, you know, going into the world that's equally as toxic, but that they are not at all helping. Mm-hmm. Um, this movie, rewatching it, is fine. I enjoy it. I really love the first half like a lot of people. And the second half works still. But it changed me on an emotional sense. I was always kind of a fan of the war film for its kind of brutality in the same way of a... I saw horror movies or action films. Uh-huh. Um, things like... I, I saw this after I'd seen Black Hawk Down... After I'd seen, you know, Saving Private Ryan. So you're making a tour of war movies, or was it like a Stanley Kubrick, like? I just no, it was. It was I. I had seen Doctor Strangelove, and I was like, I have to see Full Metal. I was actually doing it, yeah, basically a tour of Stanley Kubrick. Yeah. This is right after I'd seen Clockwork Orange, and I was like, oh boy, don't want to look forward to this. I hate Clockwork Orange with an undying passion. Of morally, or just like, it's just a. I mean, we will it's talk just, about Clockwork Orange. It's just not a fun experience for me. Mm-hmm. There's something just—I mean, it's not meant to be a fun experience. Mm-hmm. But like, if you're doing that, then like, do something that makes. I, I don't want to watch it. Right. It has the X Pac heat of movies that make me, you know, just uncomfortable. Not uncomfortable. Just make. I know me what you mean. Un- unpleasant. And you I know? apologize for having to make you watch it later. That's fine. <laughs> Maybe maybe my mind will change. Um, but this is a film that, on its base level, made me realize and made me reevaluate my viewing. Got a hole in your mouth there, Tom? Yeah, I did. It didn't make it. Pouring all over your New Haven Nighthawks shirt. Is that a is that a hockey shirt or is that a beer shirt? It's a hockey shirt. Um, made me reevaluate all those war movies I'd seen before. Mm-hmm. What I had once seen has kind of a fun, horrific but kind of fun experience mm-hmm. was changed by this. Mm-hmm. It, it became more morose and more um, 
engendering kind of the lunacy of, of war. Yeah, it, it is unpleasant. Yeah, it doesn't have the. It doesn't even have the aesthetic. It's and it's not charms it's not, it's, of like Apocalypse Now or like the action. No, it's charms flat. Of it's it's platoon. intentionally flat. Yeah. It's it's almost. Um, I don't want to say episodic, but it's almost. It, Feels like a television show at times. The way it's filmed, it's, it's it doesn't have a lot of dimensionality. It's not trying to do a lot of things. It has some, you know, two really fantastic performances from Arlie Emery and from Vincent D'Onofrio. Kind of started my love of Vincent D'Onofrio. Mm-hmm. Well, no, Men in Black did, and this just and cemented that. Oh no, it's he's actually a pretty good film. Yeah, <laughs> um, he shot himself in the head because he was just like had a, he had a, like a different bug in his like skin. Poor Vincent D'Onofrio. <laughs> he had criminal intent. Um, but this made me rewatch all those war movies and then understand. It works in the same way that Schindler's List worked in me. And, like, as much as I love Saving Private Ryan, and I'll talk about that way later, mm-hmm. or. Um, and Saving Private Ryan does it to an extreme extent. I don't think Spielberg. It, it, no, he is. But he, I don't think Spielberg was close enough to war as he was to the experience of something like Schindler's List uh-huh. in order to really touch on the vibration of the emotion that was there. Well, he's um, still Spielberg, so he can't not make D-Day feel like a Spielberg movie. Yeah. Which is, which is great, it's a, yeah, but it's also a bad scene. for a, for a war movie. And that's exciting at points, you know? Yeah. It's, it's horrifying, but exciting at yeah, points. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this isn't exciting. There's nothing exciting no. about this. It's... it's Droll. It's 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 damp. It's it's boring. Not boring. It's it's um. It's boring. Yeah, but I guess bo- I guess yeah. that would actually be a problem with the second half. Is a lot of that second half is boring, but it is tantamount to to war, especially like the Vietnam experience, um, and even like really current war. Um, it is not at all meant to excite you. No, nothing about this is is meant to give you any sort of sense of satisfaction of the events of the action that they're going No, because through. the action is just a bunch of guys shooting, you know, M16s into a building twice. Yeah. Like, that's, <laughs> that's the action of the movie. No, exactly. Um, and so, this movie shows up because it, it is a, it's a film that, and it, this is one of the last ones on the list, that just changes how I feel. And it's, it's intentional. Like the fact that, you know, um, Adam Baldwin's animal mother was supposed to be played by Arnold Schwarzenegger originally. Like that's, that's so awesome. intentional. That would have been awesome. He turned it down to do running man. That makes sense. He's made the right choice. Um, it's just so compelling in the sense that it's, it's not a movie I, I think is great. Um, but I guess it has to be like in the sense it, because of, it does exactly what it's intending to do. It's I making so. yeah, yeah, yeah. a very pertinent point. Um, and like the, you know, like the, like the Full Metal Jacket diary that Matthew Modine wrote was also stupid, but also kind of fun in uh-huh. the sense of like there is there there is like a doldrum to how Kubrick interacts with Modine, mm-hmm. like because Modine's an idiot and Mo, like Modine can't act his way out of a paper bag. He's horrible in Stranger Things. I don't really, I forgot. I forgot he's in that. I, I remember Paul Reiser more being in Stranger Things, and I watched one episode of the second season. Yeah. And Paul Reiser made more of an impact on me than Matthew Modine did. I, me- I mentioned him being Dark Knight Rises Matthew Modine because that is like outstandingly one of the worst performances <laughs> by a known act, like a notable <laughs> actor. Yeah, Matthew Modine is not very good, and, and I think that's the point. Like he, like the fact that like 
you know, Kubrick being so private um, allowed this idiot to like kind of talk to him, like just because he didn't care. I think feel like he didn't care well, in a sense of this film, but in the sense of he didn't care because if he cared enough, if he cared too much, then it would undo what it's meant to be doing. Yeah, that's a really interesting point because I think a lot of my frustrations with this movie have come from the fact that it doesn't it doesn't look very good, doesn't feel very good, and I don't mean like in a war sense. I just mean nothing feels real. Everything feels staged. It's obviously not Paris Island. It's obviously not Vietnam. It obviously both just other places. Do we think it's a, a jungle in our, Australia? No, it's England. It's like a sound stage in England, and then it, I was making, it a, was I was like making a, a good old sniper joke. Oh uh, no, that. <laughs> that's the thing, but sniper has better production design sometimes than this. Um, or and what else is it? It's like an old electrical plant that they just kind of like fitted with buildings and then just kind of knocked them down and whatever. Um, but the whole movie seems weird. Like we talked about it off air like a second ago that Matthew Modine's like laughing through like the whole movie, which I guess is supposed to be his character. But it also seems like he's not taking this movie seriously because it also seems like Stanley Kubrick is not taking that movie seriously. But it's Stanley Kubrick, so how can he not be taken seriously? Which means that he took it really seriously and it still looks like yeah, dog shit. As much as, much as I like... Um, but that's the thing. And I, I think that's, that's on purpose. I think... I think like, so, too. I, I, I don't like Stanley Kubrick a lot of times because I think maybe he's so masterfully... He's like a method director. Yeah, yeah. You know? He, or was a method director. Maybe he could have faked his death. Probably. Probably did. Probably on the moon. Him and Paul after. Thomas Anderson have been working really closely together. Did we ever see in the same room together? Nope. I, w- I would believe that Stanley Kubrick mastered de-aging. Be He's no watching way. the Irishman trailer going, nice try. Stanley Kubrick and Thomas Pynchon are hanging out in the room together. <laughs> just be like, oh, so weird. <laughs> but like that to me is, like, like it feels like, because I rewatched this and I'm like, it's an okay movie, but I think that's what makes it great. Is it's so utterly... It's forgettable in so many ways. I mean, you know, besides like like Vincent D'Onofrio at points, I think does a dis and Arlie Emery at points do a disservice to this film because they're so because they're good magnetic. Yeah, and that's bad to an extent. But mm-hmm. I think like you need that. I, you do need that though in order to say like, listen, this is a problem. Like this is the problem. Well, I think and so you need to be drawn to this kind of the charisma between the two, even though it's a really horrific, disgusting charisma. Um, and a relationship, but like it's needed in order for so feel like, like to leave that film to go like oh okay I kind of like well I mean so here's two I mean two things that I think about and they're both related to the fact that you were having this conversation it's kind of the first time I've thought about this in any other way other than like a Stanley Kubrick movie so in my mind this movie has always been a Stanley Kubrick failure because it's just not very good it just you know from all the things that you expect from Stanley Kubrick you know what I mean the world building and like the the mastery of the shots and like the you know he's a performance weirdo he asks really strange people to be in his movies and he gets really strange performances out of them like Scatman Crothers and um um Ryan O'Neill and all these other people are just like why would you ask Ryan O'Neill to be in a movie like stop asking Ryan O'Neill to be in fucking movies like Barry Lyndon's tough enough without having to listen to Ryan O'Neill do anything um 
So I've only ever considered it from that perspective. But like you're giving me two things to think about. And one of those things to think about is like the way that the two parts of the movie relate together. Because I'm one of those people that always found it really jarring. And I think the way that it works now, having just like watched it you know, this week um, to do this and then, and then having this conversation about it, is that like, you know, Arlie Emery was right. He was right the whole time. He was doing everything he was doing on purpose because what was happened to Gomer Pyle on the toilet is going to happen to Matthew Modine later, whether he wants it to or not. Whether or not he's a journalist, whether or not he wears a peace sign, or like tries to convince his, you know, upper, you know, with that guy that kind of confronts him. What do, what do they call him in the military? Like not upper management, <laughs> but like those, brass. Those guys of like what irony is and the duality of man and stuff like that. Like all that stuff, can you can stick that stuff up your fucking ass? Like. You have to be able to confront this shit. Well, Richard Gere's not in this movie. The dated yeah. reference. Yeah, yeah. Um, you have to be able to take it. Lance and- Morris, that's not in this movie. Oh, man. <laughs> Going real old there. Um, Which is interesting. Yeah, and then but, the other- and, but at the same point, it's, it's kind of... I think that exists in the same... Like, they, they create each other. They are the... What's, what's the snake? The Anubis? The snake that... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, it is it is this this horrific cycle of of yeah. reflecting off of one, of you know deflecting off of one another. This kind of environment, like the reason you know you have to be this way is because this is the world you're going into, and the reason the world you're going into is this way is because of people like, like this. Yeah, exactly. That think that <laughs> that Lee Harvey Oswald was really good. <laughs> yeah. He was a positive influence and a role model for these Marines. Yeah. Um, but I think it's I think it's it's. Like, when I was watching it again, I kept thinking, because we just watched Apocalypse Now, too, and I kept thinking about Apocalypse Now. Like, Apocalypse Now is a fucking masterpiece of film. You know what I mean? It's maybe not the best war movie, because it, it makes war too beautiful and too exciting and too amazing. But it also kind of does that whole... It does the whole, like, this is ludicrous stuff. It just does it differently. Stanley Kubrick, I, I'm, I'm interested to have a conversation with myself later like, you know, in my mind about kind of what you're saying about that, he made a movie that was illustrated the the kind of futility of these wars through making a boring movie where every frame is not filled up with, like, some kind of miraculousness. Every frame is literally filled up with a bunch of gray buildings. And the only action that happens is, like I said, it's just a bunch of people shooting guns for infinity... With infinity bullets into walls, and then occasionally running, and then slow motion people getting shot, and then more infinity shooting into walls. I mean, I find it interesting that you know his daughter Vivian Kubrick makes the score for this, and then makes the also creates a score, but it's ultimately unused for Eyes Wide Shut. Mm-hmm. In the sense that I think, like thematically, they carry a lot of the same sort of things of like the the day to day kind of like. Medi- not mediocrity, but you know, doldrum of, of everything. The day to day kind of like, well, there's flatness there of life, is... and, and like obviously, eyes wide, like probably, eyes wide shut kind of carries that for a while, then explodes, at, you know, mm-hmm. after, in the second act. Whereas this kind of carries that throughout. Um, and like yeah, that's that's another. It's like it's a flat score. I'm not gonna like criticize. Yeah, the, I don't the, even the, know. There's a score, score in most of the movie. Like, I think everything in this is so intentionally flat. 
I hope so. And I, that's an interesting way to think about it because I never thought... the door about breaks that. down, Sam the Cooper's like, you're right. <laughs> um, You'll be visited by three ghosts. I'm, the, I'm the, also the first ghost. We couldn't get another ghost. <laughs> um, this is also intentionally bad. This, the ghost, this, this ghost performance I'm doing here. No. <laughs> the second ghost will be D.W. Griffin explaining that Birth of a Nation was intentionally horrific because the second film was intolerance. Hey, Do you get it? This is 2019, D.W. Griffith. We don't care about that stuff. We don't care about intention. <laughs> You're fucked up. Um, well, 40, like 53% of people don't care about intention. Yeah. That's, there you go. Very good. Um, what was I going to say? We're going to talk about how bad my ghost impersonation was. Well, that's a good ghost point. What else would a ghost sound like? That's what they sound like. Um, yeah, I think it's weird. I think it's weird that they... Uh, there's an interest. Oh, I know what it is. There's an interesting metaphor to be laid on top of this if you really wanted to. And an interesting metaphor has to do with what all movies' metaphors are, apparently, which is like the filmmaking experience. You know what I mean? Where nobody talks about or writes about this movie without also writing about the fact that Stanley Kubrick wanted to make the Aryan Papers and instead made this. You know what I mean? Like he had, in his heart of hearts, the Aryan Papers was like the movie, the war movie he wanted to do. He wanted to do it, but Steven Spielberg was working on Schindler's List and he decided not, like working like way pre-production. It was on, Schindler's List was on Steven Spielberg's radar so he did this instead. This almost feels like a kind of phoned-in, like... Re- its redundancy seems metaphorical. You know what I mean? And the fact that this was coming three years after even Platoon. You know what I mean? Platoon came out and then this came out. Which is, like, hilarious. Which won, like, best this picture. Came out a year after Platoon. A year after... Oh, yeah. A year after I don't know why I was thinking this is 89th, 87. Um... Platoon wins Best Picture, and, you know, all these people become famous, uh, you know, all of a sudden. Like, and, like, all, you know, and all, does Oliver, Oliver Stone wins director for Platoon, right? I think he does. I'm pretty sure he does, but I, I will and look then, it up as you're talking. And then Platoon comes out, you know, seven years after the masterpiece war film. And then in between that, you have Deer Hunter, which a lot of people consider a masterpiece. You know what I mean? You have all these masterpieces of film. And then Stanley Kubrick, who's supposed to be this transcendent director, the director that all these guys looked up to, is dropping this kind of turd of a movie. Like in everyone's laps. Like, see? War stinks. But also making movies kind of stinks. And perhaps that's why it took him, like, another 12 years to put out a movie. Because it was just kind of like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what to do anymore. Everyone's doing everything. There's too much money. There's too much whatever. We all have the same ideas. We all want to make our... We all want to put our stamp in this way. Like, I'm, you know, this is the end. I'm phoning this one in. And I... I mean, I'm not saying that that's the case. No, I'm just no, saying I know. it's an interesting way to look at this, this... The narrative behind what this movie is. And like I don't just it feels like that to me like you know this is the first film like he makes after John Alcott's death you know his longtime cinematographer but the guy who goes on you know to do the cinematography for this doesn't doesn't work with him on Eyes Wide Shut you know he goes on to do you know Robin Hood Prince of Thieves and Highlander Endgame 
and the Dracula sequels. Sorry, Douglas Milsom. Um, you know, he's just he was a camera operator on yeah. some of the the previous. You know, like he was a camera operator on Linden and Clockwork Orange and and um, Shining. But it feels like if Kubrick cared about this, he would like had a deep sense that cared about in the sense of like he wanted to show an image. Yeah, yeah. And wanted to carry an image, he would have gone for somebody besides a first-time cinematographer. That knew what they were in that could convey oh, for, he a wouldn't, Stanley If he was trying to make a properly. war epic, he wouldn't choose a first-time cinematographer. Right, he would try to make... He would fucking someone, probably shoot it himself if right, he cared. He would know. find someone who could make what are essentially flat sets not look like flat sets, which yeah, is what they look like. Because who's he get for eyes... Well, I mean, my point might not be made, but who's, who's he get for eyes wide shut? He gets... Um, I don't remember. Well, I mean, he gets. I mean, he gets. He gets a, a chief electrician, and gaffer, from Barry and the Shining. There you go. So maybe maybe he was just doing the cinematography by himself by this point. But that's why it took three years to make. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, but it, it it is in the sense like, like everything about this does not feel like a labor of love. Like, no, but, but it but it but at the same time. Given Kubrick's filmography, maybe, maybe was. it was. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And that's what I have There's fine. a reason him and him, Cruz and Nick Kidman sat in a you know for months. Um, you know, and um, like how many, three, two, three years mm-hmm. living together. Yeah. to make that movie. There's a reason why Kubrick was fine shutting down production for four and a half months while Arlie Emery recovered from a car accident. You mm-hmm. know. Cared, yeah. Like, he definitely cared. Yeah, I mean, that's the one fascinating thing about the. And now it's well publicized, but the, like, Leon Vitale would work with Arlie Emery literally every day, like just rehearsing his lines over and over and over again because Arlie Emery was not an actor, even kind of. Yeah, but like, at the end of this movie, because he cared so much about this performance, he like turned him into a guy. He yeah. turned him into like an icon of film. And like a, it's an iconic performance. Yeah, he per- makes that performance for the rest of his life. You know? Well, and everyone just rips it off in every other war movie. It's just like the thing that everybody does. Show a base camp and just have somebody yell at somebody. Damon Wayans and Major Payne. There you go. Or, or in Hacksaw Ridge, but with, with the opposite happening where Andrew Garfield just says, I don't want to. You can't yell at me. Well, it's been fun. you got to be nice to me. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. 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 No, but Damon Wayans and Major Payne is great. Yeah, I love Major Payne. I'll stick my boot so far up your ass that the dew on my knee will quench your thirst. Major Payne's fucking great. Oh, Major Payne. We should do a 90s comedy episode. We then. should. That'd be good. What year was that? What you We don't need to talk about it. Um, I believe... Well, no, it, this is... Oh, a, we're looking it up? This is part somebody, of it? We're not going to make our... Oh, motherfucker. Is it 94? No, I said 95. 95? What else comes out in 90? Oh, it's... Billy Madison's 95. Tommy Boy was 95, right? No, Tommy Boy is 96. Six? No, ninety-five. I think it was ninety-five. There, right. I think Billy Madison's ninety-five. I think. When was Coneheads? Oh, Airheads is ninety-four. Coneheads, I think, is ninety-two. This Ninety-three. Is, this is really good. Um, yeah. Oh no. And Billy, <laughs> just just us brainstorming our next special episode. Billy Madison is also ninety-five. I mean, that's that's good. But. List of our top comedies of oh, 1995. Man. Are you ready? Yes. Um, heavyweights? Huh? Nah, I'm not a big fan of that one, but okay. Uh, Tommy Boy, Operation Dumbo Drop. 
Tom and Huck, starring Jonathan, Jonathan Taylor Thomas and Brad Renfro. I think we just do best Man Pop. of the House. What the fuck's that one? It is a... Is that Sinbad? No, it's not Sinbad. But we can just do best comedies of the... We can just do comedies of the 90s. That's a Chevy Chase movie. Oh, well. Um, we'll be right back with Tom's number 53. Which is not a Chevy Chase movie. You know this bites you in the ass? I think you're number 53. It did bite me in the ass. Um, my number 53 is the 2008 Darren Aronofsky film, The Wrestler. Some more work. All I got is weekends. Isn't that when you sit on other dudes' faces? You should put the Kingdom theme by ROH in there. I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot of ROH in this, which is sad. It's, rewatching this movie made me so sad. Why? I'll explain it. Okay, We're, I'm gonna get into wrestling. Um, I'm watching this. this yeah, good. We. I saw this movie. We talked about Cine One Two Three Four a minute ago. Um, I saw this movie at Cine One Two Three Four. I think probably in January of 2009 because it got released late in 2008 around Christmas time. Um, you know, prepping for Oscar stuff, um, which it got nominated for two Academy Awards: Best Supporting Actress for Marissa Tomei and uh, Best Actor for Mickey Rourke. We had- ridiculous. Only two. We've had this conversation before. 2008 was just a bad, it was a weird, weird year. year. I mean, he should have, I think he should have won over Sean Penn. We both love Sean Penn and Milk. I mean, yeah, and we, is... we disagree, but we're both like, of the disagreement of like, you know what, either wins, it's fine. But I feel like, it's fine, because Sean Penn did great work. But Mickey Rourke, I think Mickey, it, Mickey, he took it to a different level. Mickey Rourke fucked himself by doing WWE stuff after. By, by being Mickey Rourke. And wrestling it like, like, yeah. not wrestling, by punching somebody at yeah. WrestleMania 25. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's got a lot of um, Aronofsky regulars here. So, like, you know, the music is by Clint Mansell. Uh, the cinematography is not a Darren Aronofsky regular. It is uh, Maurice Alberti, who had worked with literally everybody in the world. Um, Todd Salons and Todd Haynes and Richard Linklater and, like, Terry Zweigoff and Alex Gibney. Um, you know, you get a, a, a script from Robert Siegel, which is amazing that you get a kind of decent script from a guy that wrote Turbo, which is a cartoon about snails. Um, but you get it, and so there it is. You just you have to live with it. But the guy that wrote your movie also wrote a cartoon movie about fast snails. Um, it weirdly won the gold. Oh, I mean, no, but I, I, don't but know. I like Turbo. <laughs> is that on? Turbo's <laughs> fine. I think Turbo's fine. Yeah, Turbo's good. Um, it won the Golden Lion at the Venice Film Festival that year, and we were talking about Golden. Li- we were talking about The Shape of Water. The Golden Lion. Have you ever looked at like the movies that won Golden Lions? It's a really fascinating list of movies. It's not like a. It, it, most of those movies, you're just kind of like, oh yeah, this was a movie. 
oh, I can't, I didn't, or I've never even heard of this movie. It's, it's a really strange list. I recommend everyone go Wikipedia Golden Lion Oh, the Lion Shape of Water won the Golden Yeah. Lion. That's weird. Um, it's like this. I remember Lebanon. Less caution. But yeah, Ang Lee won two out of three years. Their their 2000s made a lot of... Their 2000s make a lot of sense. Like, there's a, those are some pretty big movies mm-hmm. in, the in the 2000s. And in the 2010s, I feel sorely stupid. Yeah, I felt the same way. I know five of those movies. I don't know Woman Who Left From Afar. Pigeons. I've heard of Pigeon Who Sat in the Branch Reflecting on Existence. Because apparently that's amazing, and I just never mm-hmm. made the time to see it. But, yeah, I never... I mean, I still haven't seen Sacro Jerry yet, but I've heard of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll, have to, we'll have to do 90s comedies and, and Golden Line Gold, All the Golden Line gold movies. Um, so, yeah, I saw all those. All the other stuff is, is fine. Um, you know, whatever. We can do backstory in every movie forever. Um, I saw the Cine 1, 2, 3, 4 with... Um, Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. Yeah, that one of them. That's I'm great. Good. I love that movie. I thought you hated Tom Stoppard. I do, but I love that movie. Oh, interesting. Your Olivier movie won one of the first ones, first Golden Lions. Your Hamlet there, so there you go. But my I co-directed it with Lawrence. Yeah, it's yours. He he he, he talked to you. You were a consultant. Um. So me me and uh, my wife had just gotten Ghost married. Ghost of Film Future. <laughs> that's that's the other guy. Uh, we just got married. Um. I went to see this with my brother, and his fiance at the time. Um, now wife, now wife. Yeah, okay, I didn't know. If, I didn't know if he. No, oh, he killed her. <laughs> Funny story. Um, Just a direct head chair shot. <laughs> but that's an interesting lead up into the fact that one of the things I was reason I I don't wouldn't go. I mean, I'm going to go see a Star Wars movie with my. I would go see a Star Wars movie with my brother. I'd go see maybe like a Rocky movie with my brother, something like that. I don't think I'd go see an indie drama with my brother unless it was about wrestling. Because me and my brother, in the early part of our lives, were all about wrestling. Wrestling was a big deal. Remember Beyond the Mat? Mm. Beyond the Mat was a big fucking deal. Like, getting background information about like what Jake the Snake's life is like was a significant thing in our existence. I'm not booked. If you're quoting it, I can't tell you. I'm not booked. Okay. I don't know what that means. Are you going to go? I'm not. I'm not booked. It's been a long time. I'm not booked, Terry. I'm not going to go if I'm not booked. Um, so yeah, we were. I was, I'll, try, I'll try to keep yeah. the wrestling nerd. No, no, you can. There. You can if you're just hoping that I will acknowledge. Oh, no, no, no. You're beyond the map. I'm hoping that quotes. there's. A, I'm hoping there's a, there's wrestling fans there listening to this yeah, podcast yeah. now. Um, as we transition to an all elite wrestling podcast in the next year. But I think part of me went to see this movie. I went to see this movie. We went to see this movie together because of the wrestling. I went to see this movie as a test because Darren Aronofsky's movies up to that point had made a big fucking impact in my life. I was yeah. ready to hand over my whole life to Darren Aronofsky. I mean, I assume that on separate parts of the country, me and you both exploded in 2006 because of Darren Aronofsky. Well, I, yeah, the fountain, I mean, Requiem for a Dream, which we'll talk about later twice, ruined my life. The fountain was, which we'll, which we'll talk about twice, was something <laughs> much more magical than I could have even anticipated seeing in a movie. It blew my mind. It was like seeing High Life, like this year. You know what I mean? It was the same experience. Like, what the hell am I watching? Um, 
If we expanded that shit to 20 years, Clint Mansell definitely would have had my one and two spot. Me too. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. He's, uh, Clint Mansell is like a significant composer in my life, just not in the 2010s. Um, hey, what? Where did it happen? I don't know. But I, I think when you make those, those scores, you're just like, nah, I'm good. Maybe. Resting. I can live off this fountain money for the rest of my life. Um, Darren Aronofsky's going to make a wrestling movie. And with Mickey Rourke, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious, and I'm obviously going to go see it, but I'm also like, what is he going to do here? Like, how is the guy that made Requiem for a Dream and Pi and The Fountain going to make a wrestling movie? What, which Wikipedia and every other media thing on the internet refers to as a sports drama. Um, like, how is he going to do that? And it's funny because he did it by just making a Darren Aronofsky movie. You know what I mean? Like, we're going to talk next week about, on my list, and my 52, about recognition. One of the reasons that my 52 movie is on my list is because I was able to recognize a director's voice in a film for the first time. Where he made a movie that wasn't like any of his other movies, but I was able to pick out the parts that were that director's, his fingerprints. You know what I mean? That was, his, that was what he does. Um, I think one of the fascinating things about this movie is that you could do that. Like, Darren Aronofsky's style is all over this movie while also being... Um, and I, don't, I definitely didn't recognize it this, this at the time, but I'm recognizing it now. Like, this is a, a Claire Denis movie in a lot of ways. You know what I mean? Like with the way that the shots are composed and the way the score interacts with the film and um, how open he is about like violence and sexuality and things like that. Like Marissa Tomei is super naked in this movie. Like not like kind of naked, like glancingly naked. Like she's leaning up against a pole for 30 seconds gyrating while a medium shot just kind of like Shows us all of her nakedness. Well, this is like her back-to-back with Before the Devil Knows You're Dead nakedness. Right. But this is a different kind of nakedness than yeah. Before the Devil Knows You're Dead. Um, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead nakedness was still pretty intense in its own. But this is... It's funny because this is... It's nakedness that isn't intense. It's, a, it's no, exactly. emotionally intense nakedness. In the same way that the hardcore wrestling match that Randy the Ram Robinson gets involved in is emotionally violent. It's... Like, actually violent. He gets a bunch of staples put into him. He jumps onto a table full of barbed wire. He gets thrown through a glass door. Um, Retired wrestler Necro Butcher. Yeah. Who apparently is a genius also. But we don't have to... That's Wikipedia is really good for telling you about these defunct wrestlers. Um, I can actually tell you something about why... We'll talk about that. Um, Deathmatch wrestling is actually one of the safest possible wrestlings you can like safest possible forms of wrestling. You can oh, do. but whatever, it doesn't make any difference because like when you're watching this movie, you don't know that you just know that blood is streaming out of him, and afterwards he has a heart attack. Um, which was a goofy part, but yeah, go ahead. But that's, so we're gonna get to that too. Um, 
Actually, not so goofy. Actually, no. No, it it's is, not goofy. But that's the thing. It's not goofy, actually, There's at all. a lot of things about this movie that are really goofy. But, but I want to say goofy for, the... as a wrestling fan. Oh, okay. So I'm going to approach this movie as a gigantic wrestling fan. But because of the earnestness of it, it some Ladies. of the goofy stuff seems less... It doesn't seem goofy at all. It seems just perfectly normal. It doesn't even seem like a movie in a lot of things. And that's one of the things that, like, the... Um, Maurice Alberti's cinematography does really well, and something that she's done in a lot of her movies is that she shoots a lot of ver- she shoots this like verite style where things aren't always in frame properly, and like there everything's in focus. Like that's a stupid thing. Like oh, things aren't in focus, but everything seems really real. So even when you're having these kind of like very cliched emotional speeches about like your heart or whatever or you know go on a date with me or have a beer with me or whatever um they all seem real they seem like actual things that people in new jersey were talking about at the time um and so i mean we haven't got into this the wrestler is about um randy the ram robinson actual name robin um ramzinski is a wrestler who was famous in the 80s and uh, you know i'm assuming the late 70s and the 80s and Maybe a little bit even into the 90s, even though he says the 90s suck. And he is now, you know, all these years later, he is wrestling on the, what do you call that circuit? Like The independent circuit. The independent circuit. And which you and me have gone to, some independent wrestling matches. I mean, the independent, if you like wrestling, you go, you have seen independent wrestling matches. I went, we went together to the Bethany Town Hall. See Northeast Wrestling, one of the biggest independent wrestling federations. Re, the guy we saw at those two shows, the guy that was like the big heel, yeah. is now the ROH world champion. Which is amazing. He did the pre-main event. He won the pre-main event of a sold-out Madison Square Garden show on WrestleMania weekend this year. And... It was, and people hated it because they don't like him. Oh, really? It's ridiculous. I love Matt Taven. They, oh yeah, Matt Taven. Yeah, you have a fan in me, Matt Taven. That show, I don't know what was you going on. You could bear an ROH though, bud. I don't know what was going on backstage, but that show looked exactly like the shows that they were showing in the wrestler. You know what I mean? It was real. Yeah. Maybe not everyone understands that that's real, but if you know wrestling, you understand. And you and you follow it, and you like weirdly go to these things. Like you know that that's real, and it feels real. And when you're watching it, um, it feels real. And even, and everybody knows, oh, I'm, I'm getting off course. I was describing the thing. Um, so he's wrestling on the independent circuit. He gets, uh, you know, a deal to, or he gets an opportunity to wrestle the Ayatollah where he famously had a match in Madison Square Garden. Um, Which, you know, by the 20 way, twenty years ago, to, and and Ernest the Cat Miller, yeah. is, you know, great WCW wrestler, really good in this movie. Yeah, he's really having a good time, which is which is awesome. Everyone's yeah. kind of having a good time, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he gets a chance to relive that at, at you know a fan festival, a wrestling fan festival, and and um, but he also gets locked out of his his trailer because he can't afford his rent and he's got to buy drugs to keep himself in shape and he's got to tan and he's got to um, dye his hair and he's got to you know fix his tights and he's got to do you know he's got to get t-shirts and videos made to sell to people keep his got to keep his polaroid in good working order so he can sell them for $8 a piece at these like autograph session things um, he is so friends. 10 years later he got a pro wrestling tees web there you page go and he would been fine um, he's friends with Cassidy, who is a stripper at a uh, strip club. Her real name is Pam, played by Mercer Tomei. Um, they're both on the wrong side of 
the age range where people are willing to accept them as anything other than kind of a novelty. Um, and they both kind of hate it. No, that, but that's... I mean, it is, it is, whether it is or not we silly. agree with you, that's what's happening here in the movie. That was the one part. I always thought Marissa Tomei was kind of a miscast in this. Because those guys were like, you were my sh- grandma. It's like, yeah, it's she's like... A sh- like yeah, she's like thirty nine years old. It's also like a really shitty backwater, and she's what? So she's for, she's forty four, forty three when she does this movie, but it's fucking Marissa Tomei. Yeah, like I that's the one problem I have. This movie is like they build up like oh she's on the wrong side of age. It's like no, I'm well, sorry. Maybe maybe stereotypically, but like, like she's still Marissa Tomei. And in a small town strip club, or even like a decent sized, even most decent sized strip clubs. Or anywhere. You'd see Mercy Tomei and you're like, huh. I'm coming here forever. Um, but they both want out. They, neither of them want to do this anymore. Um, they want to do something else. They're not 100% sure what that next step is. But both of them think that if they do this one thing, she leaving, moving to this house... And he wrestling in this thing is going to get him out. Good R- even, ROH show, Ring of Honor. He even feels like getting out for a moment is working in the, the deli counter of the local grocery store, which is managed by the tremendous and Oscar-worthy Todd Berry. Um, and he just, it's just not going to happen. You know what I mean? It's not going to happen. For either of them, in the way that they think it is. And then I guess eventually it does. We'll talk about that. Um, part of me loves this movie because of, you know, all that, uh, all the extra stuff. Part of me loves this movie because of the craft that went into making this movie. Like, you know, Mickey Rourke's performance and Aronofsky's direction. I love Darren Aronofsky. We're talking about him forever. Um, but just, it's, it's another example of how, like, as I started watching movies more and paying m- way more attention to movies and they became more important in my life, that I started wanting, um, well, I like the big movies, you know, we talked about Inception earlier, I also, part of me wants these simple movies, you know what I mean? These movies where, like, the score is really simple, it's just a bunch of actors talking, the emotions are really simple. You know what I mean? They're not doing anything here emotionally that hasn't been done like a million times before. But that's why you get Marissa Tomei and and Mickey Rourke and even Evan Rachel Wood as a three-scene thankless performance as Mickey Rourke's daughter. Um, Because you need someone to carry very obvious emotions and make them real. And that's what this movie is for me. This movie is a glimpse of, um, you know, of reality. And it's not everybody's reality, and I'm not saying it's like a universal thing, but it is this guy's reality, and it feels real. You know what I mean? Mm. To the point where I think a lot of the choices that they make are really interesting. Like, the fact that we never really see... So Mark Margolis is in all of Darren Aronofsky's movies, but you never really see him in this movie. You see him from afar. You see him chasing, like, the ram chasing after him. You know what I mean? You see him kind of just, like, in profile. You never see these people. You don't really get a good look at like the other kids that live in that neighborhood except for that one guy kid that comes in to play video games with Randy, but you assume that he knows all of them really well. This is a movie about a guy, and it, the, it centers around this guy, and it expands and contracts based on like this one guy's emotions, um, and 
I don't know. It's just one of those movies that like you hold on to. You know what I mean? You, like you see it. It's like, a, it's like you just put it in your pocket and like you just know that it's there. Or you stick it in your wallet. You know what I mean? It's a thing you always know it's there, and you don't. Sometimes you don't, don't even think about it. But when you, when it occurs to you, you take it out and you look at it, and you're just like, "That's." I'm glad I have this this thing with me. And the wrestler is one of those movies. It's like a. It's weirdly a feel-good movie, even though we're forced to assume that he dies at the end of it. But you're also forced to assume that, like, that's kind of what he's looking for. You know what I mean? He's not looking to stay here forever. He just wants to have that one last, that one more minute of glory when he is the hero and everybody loves him. And then he can, um, you know, jump off the top rope and just, and just go do whatever else he's going to do in the next life. Um... But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's weird because it's a really simple movie, but it's endlessly fascinating. I really, I mean, it's, I love the wrestler, obviously, because it's on my list. But um, yeah, it's it's one of the it's one of the the one of the less heralded great great pictures. I feel like I like the wrestler. Um, it's interesting. It doesn't hit. It doesn't. As a gigantic wrestling fan, mm-hmm. like as a person who loves the fact that you know there's so much respect given to to wrestling, yeah. um, in the sense that he wrestles Necro Butcher in a combat zone wrestling mm-hmm. ring. You know, he has a hardcore match in a, in that in the promotion. That per, that is was all about hardcore. You know, mm-hmm. they had the 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 death mat. Oh man, what is it called? The tournament of oh god, I can't remember right now, <laughs> off the top of my head. Um, yeah, the tournament of death. You know, was was known for being the tournament of death. This was you know seven or so years after the the fall of ECW because mm-hmm. Paul Heyman was a great booker, terrible businessman. Mm-hmm. You know, CZW was taking up the mantle of, of hardcore, and, you know, he wrestles Necrobutcher in a hardcore, you know, drastically hardcore match. And But then after the match, you know, Necrobutcher has, like, this sign of respect for him. He's a really eloquent, kind of smart man, and there's, like, playing off yeah, of yeah, each yeah. other. You know, it's, it's, it's quote-unquote, exposing the business. Jim Cornette would probably be unhappy about that. Um, but, you know, it's it's kind of showing that it's all it is all a show. And, you know, they they having that, that big final match in, in Ring of Honor is, is huge because that this is at the point where, you know, Ring of Honor was at its height. Like Ring of Honor was the only promotion at the time that exists that was answering to WWE that was presenting a, an alternative product to WWE. And WWE sucked at this time. Like WWE was so in Care, 2008? In, yeah, WWE's yeah. like in this John Cena beats everybody mode. That's all they um, can do. You know, and like, this is 2008. They have, basically, if you look at the roster of Ring of Honor at the time, it is the roster of WWE now, you know, um, since they've raided the roster. But it's, it's a movie that pays such respect to it. Mm-hmm. Like, the fact that Darren Aronofsky went and to a Ring of Honor show... And did the speech, had, you know, um, Mickey Rourke deliver the speech, and then the fans booed him and said, you suck. <laughs> you suck, Randy. And then Darren Arnosky had to go out there and say, 
guys, you're supposed to really support him. And the fans then chanted, re-fucked up, re-fucked up. <laughs> and then they redid it, and then they cheered him yeah. on. Like, it, there's a camaraderie. There's, like, a respect to wrestling. Um, which is, is, is interesting. And it shows how, how talented of a filmmaker Aronofsky is, because he, he's noted he wasn't a wrestling guy. He, he, he said, he's just like, there's never been a serious wrestling movie, but he always said, like... It just seems like an interesting topic, and he's been asked, like, are you, like, Collider asked him, were you a wrestling fan? He's like, no. I went to see a match when, like, Tony Atlas was wrestling Hulk Hogan, right? and Hulk Hogan was the heel, and he got dropped on his balls, and I found that funny. Well, one of the things I really love about this movie is that you can literally substitute wrestling for any other thing in your life that you give your whole life to. But it is so important to the world of wrestling. Yeah. Because it is, this movie comes out in December 2008. In July 2007, Chris Benoit kills himself, his wife, and his kid. kid. Yeah. And this is, like the, this is the moment where like wrestling needed, like, hey, you know, like, yesterday, we're, we're recording this on, on, on a Friday. Randy the Ram is um, the epitome of the 80s wrestler. He was the, the pinnacle 80s wrestler. He was like the Roddy Piper. To, you know, like, it gives you an idea that this is a world where somebody like, um, I wouldn't say he's Roddy Piper. He's is like he? a Kurt Henning type character, I would imagine, kind of with like the like long, he's, he's hair. He's earlier than that. I would say he's, he kind of has like a snooker reference, but he's not, he's like a he's white a high gym, flyer. He's a white Jimmy high flyer, yeah. But this photo, the 19, and, and this photo is on the Reddit squared circle, showing an interview of the 1988 Andre the Giant Survivor Series yeah. team. There it is. There's Ravishing Rick Rude, and there's Mr. Perfect in the middle there. As of yesterday, every single person in this photo is dead. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The oldest person was Harley Race and Mean Gene Oakland. Yeah. At 76. Andre Giant died in his 40s. Rick Rude died in his 40s. Kurt Henning died, a, maybe, I think, in his 30s. Uh, Dino Bravo got, got killed in a mob hit. Um you know, Bobby the Brain died in his early 70s, but he wasn't a wrestler. Uh-huh. You know, like, like the fact that, that Harley Race as a wrestler made it to 76 is considered a long life. Mm-hmm. Roddy Piper was once interviewed about, like, health care for wrestling. And there's a big, uh, there's a really good John Oliver. Yes, I remember um, that one. Last week, tonight, about this. And, you know, just about how, like, wrestlers need health care and, and need, need something. Um and they asked like about a retirement plan for Roddy Piper and like why are you still wrestling? And it's like, well, I can't access my money till I'm sixty five. And let's be honest, I'm not gonna make it to sixty five. And he doesn't. He dies at sixty one. Mm-hmm. Um so I appreciate this film intellectually in the sense of I think it's a it's a solid movie and it's solid thematically, but it's a fucking important movie mm. from a wrestling perspective, from a wrestling fan perspective. And that it has it doesn't Look down upon wrestlers. It doesn't. Not even kind of. No, it, it it exalts wrestling, but at the same time does talk about like a systemic problem in in the way wrestling was, and addresses like the fact of like where it is. You're on your like, own, and and you're on your own, and like that's a problem that you know, it's it is a real problem, and if to an extent, it feels like it's something that's slightly starting to be, you know, talked about. Um. I mean, but still, I mean, no, no, it's not by WWE, not yeah, by, exactly. I, I mean, even though, even though I'm, I'm very pro on the all elite wrestling thing, um, and they're offering their guys contracts. I'm still waiting for them to give their guys health care. Um, 
you know, New Japan still has all these problems with the shit they do in their dojos, you know, but it, it presents the real problem. Like, as a wrestling fan, it's hard for me sometimes to, like, look at this stuff, look at this movie, and look at the world in which it was created. But, like, it, it, I feel like this and, like, what happened with Chris Benoit, in fact, it's some positive change that it brought all the focus in, you know? Well, and, like, and, like, to me, like, then Mickey Rourke's interaction with WWE, to interaction with was something that was really toxic at the time, and I think, to me, still is toxic. Mm-hmm. Um, just in a more geopolitical way now with its re- tense relationship with Saudi Arabia. Mm-hmm. Um, but brought up the fact that, like, after this, like, you know, you start seeing the banning of, like, the head chair shots. You start seeing the banning of things that are just, like, you, you see the creation of the wellness program. And I'm not saying the wrestler did this. This is mostly more prone from the stuff that happened, like Chris Nowinski's concussions and more intensely with, you know, Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero's death. But, like, mm-hmm. this is arrives at such a time where the people who kind of see wrestling and who would maybe hear about the Chris Benoit death and be like, well, that's just because of wrestling. The wrestler was such a prominent moment in like respecting wrestling. And then at the same time was so like, even though it doesn't make a huge impact in terms of box office became such like a pop culture moment. Yeah. Because I mean, but Mickey Rourke never stopped being like a movie star. Yeah. He just didn't make any movies that anybody wanted to see anymore. Um, I mean, it's weird because there's that one great scene, like very early on in the movie, like after they, um, you know, they wrestle. Mickey Rourke wrestles that guy with the mohawk. I forget his name, and he's just like, "Oh, you got a lot of potential. You're going to do good." And the guy's just like, "Okay." Like, there's an element where like they under this new generation understands that like I don't really have any choice here. Like, you maybe were able to go to the next level. Like, there's no next level for me. And even if I get to the next level. Like, I'm just going to be like you in 20 years anyway. So what difference does it make? You can't move his arms and who's, you know, taking steroids to keep his body in shape because he's afraid of it falling apart on him. Yeah. Like, that. like we're all going to be the same after a certain number of years. Like, however much potential and, I have, I'm going the same way you're going. And I want to say, like, like, movies like this, like, changed a mindset. Like, you look at wrestlers now. And, like, a lot of wrestlers will call this... And I don't want to say like I'm too much into like I'm still just a fan, but a lot of people say like like a lot of you look at like there's more of like a backstage look to an certain extent like in like YouTube shows like Up Up Down Down by mm-hmm. Xavier Woods, who's a W wrestler, and some like the other guys right. who say like we're more like fans like mm-hmm. and and so they spend their time like playing video games and like there was this like good old boys culture in the 80s and 90s of like you fucking go out you party you get drunk yeah, yeah you yeah. do a ton of drugs and now it's just like you hang out you play video games. But you, they can't, probably, they, they drink you can't still afford no. to. Like Rick, like when Rick Flair, like the Rick Flair doc is fascinating in that regard because like his and no, you couldn't, the giant. you couldn't at a certain point. But now I think they just know better. They know better, and they're being smart. And I think things like this movie and things like what happened in the past did it. You know, like these people notoriously ate and drank like shit in the eighties. Like they talk about, I can't remember what wrestler it was. It was told like you know, I forgot who it was now. Um, like just several of the wrestlers would just eat and drink like shit, mm-hmm. pump themselves full of steroids, and they just got like big and puffy, and then they die in their forties. Yep. You know, now they like, well, you'll see them eating chicken and fry and broccoli, and that's it. You know, like they're so tightly in control of their diet, and they're not going out fucking partying or drinking. Well, there's still like, there's still like obviously wellness policy issues in terms of like they still, at sometimes cycle, um, obviously, but like there's well, yeah, Triple H is still in charge of. Most of the WWE, and he's 
you know. Yeah, but like that's the thing too. Is like there's life. there's an acceptance now of the small wrestler. There's there's the there's the or the out of shape. I mean, like the vaguely out of shape. What's that guy? Is Kevin, Kevin Owens? Owens? Yeah, yeah. Who is just you know a yeah. guy? Yeah, exactly. Of of not having to be this larger than life thing of just being a wrestler getting by. Like these people who said they weren't going to make it, like in this movie, now are starting to kind of make it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and I, I I mean maybe I'm reaching here, but this movie seems like a, it helped to exemplify. The culture, along with you know the internet fans, and kind of like getting more exposed to the world, and also realizing how shitty wrestling was to the wrestlers. Yeah. Um, well, and I think it's one of those things where, like, um, and I think last year they're people, you know, or this year's fighting against my family. It's, that was this year, right? <laughs> fighting against my family is kind of like the fighting opposite. for my family. I thought I was fighting with my family. Or fighting, fighting with my family. Fighting with my family. Um, it's kind of the opposite of this in the sense that like, it shows like you go from like. Being an amateur to the rock being at your house, you know what I mean? Where like in this, which is ridiculous. This like, movie shows Brittany maybe, Brittany Knight, who became like Brittany Knight, uh, right? Page like wrestled, yeah. starting at twelve and had to retire at twenty five because she suffered a shit ton of neck injuries. Right, but this movie will just have you believe. And I, again, I didn't see it. it just trailer stuff. It's like, well, the, well, the rock just comes over and you're super famous. And then yeah, he definitely talks doesn't to you talk. It definitely funny. doesn't lead to the fact that she got. It definitely doesn't end with her being injured. It ends with like, oh, she won the world title after right. WrestleMania 30. Um, and this movie clearly states like his heart troubles, like the doctor says it. And, and it's one of the way, I think the script works for this movie in, in aesthetically. And it says like, Darren Aronofsky doesn't want that much information coming out. So the doctor's like, well, all the stuff you put in your body, you have to stop. And we just saw all the stuff he puts in his body. And he puts all that stuff in his body so he can keep doing exactly what he's doing because if he doesn't, he can't do it anymore. Yeah. Um, so the options, he doesn't have like any options. Like the end of this movie is happy for him because everyone's cheering, Ram Jam, Ram Jam, Ram Jam. But like he's gonna die. If he doesn't die in that moment, he's going to die. He's going to die, and it's not because of anything that like happened ancillarily regarding his career. It's because of all the things he had to do to keep his career going. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, like only if they only had a pension plan and retirement and right, then he insurance. could just then he could he could make the bare minimum. Or if Andrew Yang were president, he could make the bare minimum to pay his rent to at least have a place to live. Yeah, you know what I mean? And that's he's essentially wrestling. He's not wrestling so he could be famous anymore. He's not wrestling to do anything. He's literally just wrestling so he has a place to sleep that is in his van. But you know what's really sad about sleeping in his van? He obviously sleeps in his van all the time. Like, he has a plan for sleeping in his van. You know what I mean? Like, it's, his van is ready to be his house whenever he needs it to be. Um, and I think the, the movie is really good from even from like a non-wrestling perspective because it illustrates all those things in very no, plain it, it, it very works. plain film language. It works in in, in any industry. And like that's what like, you know, Pam has a stripper kind of like on a lower level kind of exemplifies is like, you know, they're both like somewhat in the entertainment industry. They're both in this sort of world, but like they both have aged out and don't know what to do from here. Um, well, I love the juxtaposition. But it could between, be anything. Yeah. yeah, I love the juxtaposition between like him having that hardcore fight and then her like going up to all like the guys asking for dances. Like they're both throwing themselves on glass tables. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It just it just looks different. Like, but the end result is both of them being like crushed. Yeah, I don't want to fucking do this. Like, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, you know. And 
he has a heart attack, but that's just that's a plot point thing. Uh, that'll end the same way, but it's like the same thing. But like I said before, this movie could literally be if it's not wrestling, it's anything. And if it's not, you know, but it could be any. Just, I think I think it could be anything where we dehumanize the person, uh, where we don't where we see the person as something. Yes, less that's a than good point. Human. Yeah, yeah, very good. Um. I mean, you know, in wrestling, we see these bigger, larger-than-life meatballs, and in, you know, something like porn or pornography or stripping, we see them as we, just objects of sex. And we don't that, see them as people who have functioning lives that are going to have to have plans and We features. want it. And that's the other thing, is that, like, we as a, as a, as a consumer, want as a the consuming product. public, want the product. We see them as a product. And There's always a all those wrestling places, except for, like, the fan fest or except for like the autograph session are kind of are full of people. There are always people who want the thing that you want to sell them. Um, but they also just, they don't really care whether or not you are, have a bypass scar now on your chest or like have a or kid at home or, yeah, you know, that you don't want to do this. Yeah. yeah, exactly. They just, they don't really care. They just want it. You have to do what you have to do. There's no bad thing here. I suppose maybe they're, Maybe there is. We could point fingers at whoever we want, but it's just the nature of the culture. There are people who are no, the culture. To the culture in itself. Services. The culture in itself, and the the that identity in itself is the problem. I mean, I don't think there's a single point to blame at a single individual to blame. No, it's just it's, it's just it just is you know a, a culture and event. It, it's it just, endemic it just becomes, in the entertainment culture. It becomes the it becomes you know the present day problem of of not a, of when you realize the problem, then not collectively addressing it that's when it you can start pointing fingers mm-hmm. um and i think that's what this is it's just like it's endemic of of just anytime we have somebody like an entertainment or, or not even entertainment like to a certain degree you can see like i don't, don't want to say soldiers or whatnot but even like like to a certain degree yeah, yeah, like no, before then yeah, um, yeah. before because i think now we're finally starting to notice that for the longest time and our government still doesn't for the longest time like people didn't you know address that and, and it was just like the service you provided but it wasn't it was just like oh thank you for your service but it didn't mean anything it's just like you are the identity of this it's like making your occupation your identity yes anything that where your occupation is your identity you know um but as a consuming culture and this is this works perfectly for soldiers too we us we assume our own roles in the lives of of the people whose lives we are consuming you know what i mean mm. like we are not, unfortunately with wrestling you are not just consuming like a show you are also consuming like that person's body and their you know years of their life and they may even sometimes their real life to give like, that to you even sometimes their real life like one of the big things right now in wwe is a real relationship between two wrestlers and they've made it like into the main storyline oh you know, really it's, yeah and you know it's just like Whatever could be their personal life, like now that like Twitter found that out, you know they they consumed into whatever yep. secrecy they had is now consumed into the. So now they don't have the a personal life anymore. Their personal life is the culture's personal life. And, yeah, you know, but I think I mean I don't think this movie works as well if it's not as simple as it is. You know what I mean? If mm. it's not as unostentatious as as it is, it's if it if it's not just a this slice is, this of is, life movie. This is Darren Aronofsky's most like. Unassuming film. Well, then he'll make too. he'll make Black Swan, but Black Swan has shit in it. Yeah, black. But this so. doesn't this doesn't have any sort of metaphoric 
in pole. I mean, metaphoric, no, like no, no, visual, no. visual, right? Yeah, yeah. Or, he's visual just, or audio kind of like aspects. He's just showing you some stuff, yeah. and that's like I love the hardcore scene because when that when the shot opens, it's looking down on him, not on Ram, but on Necro Butcher, just sitting, just like being. He just fell on the table. He's bleeding, and he's got a five-dollar bill, like a ripped-up five-dollar bill, stapled to his head. But you're just right there. You know what I mean? You're just—he's not trying to make it interesting. He's not raging bull here. You know what I mean? Yeah. Where like every frame of a fight scene is a metaphor for something else, or symbolic of of, of some kind of personality trait of Jake LaMotta. It's literally just like this guy fell on a table covered with barbed wire with a five-dollar bill stapled in his head. This is what that looks like. End of end of comment. I mean, I do have problems like like as a wrestling fan with stuff like that being described as like the pits and like the worst of the worst and like in a but sense I don't of think like it is really being described as like the pits. No, it is not in the but movie. I guess, no, not in the movie. But like it's 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 odd in a sense that like there was this entire discussion of like hardcore wrestling being like the problem and like the, oh, like the head chair shots were. Um, but, well, like, but that's because kids started jumping off of houses onto trampolines. Yeah, exactly. Thinking they were being, you know, all these wrestling leagues, which me and my brother participated in. But also. getting like hit in the sh- like getting a five dollar bill stapled into you looks gross, but it's a lot better than taking a tiger suplex, which is a neck drop suplex onto an apron, which is the part where the wood is, and you actually take that spot onto your head, mm. and that's happened like a few months ago, and it was considered a great wrestling match, hmm. you know. Was considered a, a technical greatness. That's a Kota Ibushi, uh, Tetsuo Naito match from New Japan uh, Dominion. Um, but like you watch that stuff, and I'm like, I don't want to watch that because like a person takes enough of that. A person takes enough of those things, and that like Kota Ibushi is going to be the type of guy who's going to wake up at some point and not be able to walk. Whereas Necro Butcher like has scars and whatnot. But I, I don't know. I'm making an assumption here, but because of the spots, you know, the moves he takes, but like. A $5 bill to the head looks gross, but, you know, that's going to scar, but it's not going to fucking give you It's not CTE. going all the you're way not gonna your get, brain. You're not getting CT yet. Yeah. Um, There's a reason Abdul the Butcher is still alive. He just has a really fucked up, scarry head. <laughs> Abdul the Butcher, I think, is... Even I think... Sorry, I'm getting so much into the wrestling. But it's just like... I think this, it makes the sense of... the film. Abdul the Butcher is... You know, one of the noted hardcore wrestlers, and he's 78. He's older than everyone in that Survivor Series. Mm. Yeah, which is a bummer. And yet his sc- his head's fucked up because he just would always flee. Cut his head, yeah, yeah. But that doesn't... I mean, as long as you're doing it right, it it's, won't kill you. It just yeah. looks bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, anything else? Every respect for people. Assholes. Yeah. I, I include myself in that asshole conversation. Yeah, I agree. I, I include you also in that. <laughs> I was like, is that what you mean? <laughs> <laughs> if you also think Mario's an asshole, you can, uh... No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, but yeah. yeah. Tense conversations today, huh? Well, they were oh, good deep. conversations. They are good, but... I didn't Wait think this up. episode was going to be this long. It's like, it's got to be over two. 210. Yeah. Creeping on 211. Our two... Our two uh, this is how you know we're getting further up on our list. Is like these, movies, these, these conversations are getting intense. They're getting, like... Politically intense at points. Oh, Trump police coming after us. It's Tony Harp said it again. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, so yeah, if uh, I don't know, what, what do we do first now? I feel like we haven't uh, done if you this have any, in a while. If you have any.
pivoting. Well, it's been a while. We yeah. Recorded two and a half weeks ago. I guess so. At this point. Uh, if you have any comments about professional wrestling um, or about war or about film scores. Just those three things. Or about lead abatement. Mm. Yep. You can tweet us at pivotalfilm.com or at twitter.com slash filmpivotal. Yeah. Or you can email us at pivotalfilm uh, pivotalfilmpodcast at gmail.com or you can go to pivotalfilm.com and see a list of the movies on our list which I will update tonight hopefully um, and the beers we drank and which I haven't, I haven't updated any of that stuff in a long time uh, or how to subscribe. Um, but yeah, there's a lot of there's a lot of movies coming out streaming I think soon. Yeah. But we we'll try to catch some. Well, but you've well, seen Souvenir. I, I haven't yet. Oh, yeah. Super a, lot of this, a lot of this podcast is me having to catch up with all the movies you've seen. Yeah, we'll do Once Upon a Time in Hollywood maybe next week. That or farewell. After. That or farewell, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we'll see. Depends on what we're going to think about more. Yeah. Well, you should, you're going to have to see Once Upon a Time in Hollywood anyway. Oh, boy. Yeah. It'd be weird if you're like, just like, nah, I'm not this one. <laughs> just like, I said, this, this is the one I'm going to not do. I go there and I'm like, mm, one ticket for Hobbs and Shaw. Please. <laughs> <laughs> Ooh, I'm interested to hear about what you think about the Black <laughs> Superman movie. Um, that ends up just being Moana, but doesn't Does matter. Be, doesn't matter. I just called the Vanessa Kirby feature. <laughs> yeah, and we forget that she's in it. Um, and she always seems to be like the catalyst for people falling through things. But it does, you know. Moana, Vanessa That's Kirby. Kirby. Listen, Black Kirby, Superman. Kirby floats up and then falls. That's what Kirby does. That's right. You're right. Um, you may. We. <laughs> So yeah, go see Hobbs and Shaw, uh, have a beer, and we'll talk to you next week.